Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Be revolutionary. UMass is the Commonwealth's flagship public research university and committed to the relentless pursuit of progress. Learn more at umass.edu. And Cambridge Savings Bank. CSB is committed to improving the financial well-being of local small businesses through financial education and banking services. Learn more at cambridgesavings.com. Member FDIC. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, there goes not just the neighborhood, but the entire city. Now that the Gaming Commission is okaying the opening of a casino in Everett, Boston as we know it may be forever changed. Well, open lines ask you, if you think traffic is bad now, what's living in the area going to be like once the high rollers start rolling into town? Or are you thrilled? When Julian Assange was arrested at the Ecuadorian embassy, the media were worried about the welfare of his cat. Meanwhile, a Boston-based doctor was worried about Julian Assange himself, saying he wasn't getting adequate medical care. We'll talk to medical ethicist Art Kaplan about this and other medical headlines. At noon, national security expert Juliet Kion joins us to talk about the measles epidemic, another shooting, this time in UNC's college campus, and news that Robert Mueller is troubled by William Barr's interpretation of the Mueller report and its findings. That and more is next on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Jim Rowdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. So as we uh, speak, the Attorney General William Barr is testifying uh, before the Senate on his letter from Barr, uh, from Mueller, excuse me, that took aim at the Attorney General's conclusions about exoneration of the president. Uh, Mueller alleged in this letter that we just found out about last night that Barr did not present the full context of his report in his short four-page summary and that he misled the American public. We're going to talk about this a little bit later with Juliet Kime and then later on with David Gergen uh, from the Harvard Institute of Politics, a CNN a legal analyst and advisor to four presidents. And not only are we going to talk about that, and obviously we'll talk, there'll be much more of the hearing by the time Juliet and then David Gergen join us. There's also a question as to whether or not uh, William Barr in early March lied uh, to members of the House of Representatives when he asked if he had any idea about how uh, Mueller felt about uh, uh, things and concerns he had. And he says, no, I don't know. And in fact, just days earlier, he had not only gotten a letter from Bob Mueller, but he had a 15-minute conversation with Mueller in which Mueller expressed his concerns. So, yeah, March 27th was a letter a few days. Then they had the uh, phone conversation. Yep. Then on April 9th and April 10th, he twice said he really didn't know what Bob Mueller thought about anything. In any case, we're going to get to that a little bit later in the show. But first, there's another huge local story you just heard from Henry. Let the gaming begin. Wins Encore Boston Harbor Casino will soon be open for business. I think the date is June 23rd. Yesterday, as you know, the Gaming Commission hit win. With a $35 million fine, they hit uh, Wynn Resorts CEO Matt Maddox with a $500,000 fine, and they ruled that Wynn Resorts can keep its license and open, as I said, at the end of June. We're taking your calls asking you, is this the end of Boston as we know it, or is it the beginning of a wonderful new era? If you voted in favor of casinos on the ballot questions but have had buyer's remorse, were you hoping that a way out of this would be to have Wynn's license revoked, to have them shown not to be suitable? If Boston has a traffic problem now, are you ready for it to get worse? Or do you think the promise of jobs and tax revenue and a new glitzy entertainment venue will make it 
all worthwhile. The number is 877-301-8970. Let me tell you what is clear. I don't know if people are getting this. I, I hope this doesn't sound condescending. As of yesterday afternoon, I think it was 645, the report came out. And assuming, even though we've discussed it with the attorney general several times, that she doesn't decide to attempt to overturn the decision. We have no idea, but I would assume it's unlikely. We are entering a new era for Boston that will never be the same. Now, again, people may think it's fabulous. I love that building over there. It looks like, you know, Las Vegas has come to Everett and we can see it from half of downtown. I love that we're going to have all these great shows and gambling and great restaurants. Or they may, may feel it's the it's a cultural change that people are really not happy with. But what is unequivocal, I don't care how obsessed you are, as Marjorie is, with Mueller and Barr and things like that. Or we went to see the Clintons last night, which we'll also discuss a little bit later in the show. I don't care what other obsessions you have. If you live in greater Boston, Boston will never be the same as of 645 last night. And again, you may love it, you may hate it, but the fact is that everything changed. I don't know if Boston will never be the same, Jim. Everett's probably not going to be the same, despite the fact that they report that 8 million visits a year over there. But my this is not Boston's casino? Well, it, it is Boston's casino, but it's in Everett. So. It is in Everett. <laughs> so that's right. Have you been to Everett lately? Yeah, I have, actually. Really? Yeah. I had what it. were you doing in Everett? I actually... I. Well, maybe not lately, but I, no, I have been. I have I've absolutely been to okay. Everett. Back in uh, uh, 07, Jim was over there floating around. He was slithering around Can in I Everett, say but something? he hasn't been there. Here's the thing. My favorite thing about this whole thing what? is Best Hotel's great piece in the Boston Globe with some of the residents of Everett reacting to the <laughs> to the casino. My favorite is this woman that she describes as uh, Nancy Thomas, who lives nearby and has to walk by what she called this Vegas Strip uh, every day on her way to her real estate job. She says, it's like an evil person watching over me. Another Everett resident, Allie Nix, calls it a monstrosity, an eyesore. She's appalled. You look at all these beautiful developments in Boston, they're pretty blue glass. I think the casino was attempting to go rose gold, but it looks brown. And it goes on and on and on for people complaining about how awful it is. But on the other hand, you have people saying, well, you know, Everett wasn't so great to begin with, so really, uh, what are they blocking? They're, they're not a, uh, exactly blocking trees or a beautiful waterfall, said our favorite comedian, Steve Sweeney. He's a Charlestown native. He says, what are you talking about? It's freaking Everett. 877 uh, 8970 is, uh, is the phone number. You know, by the way... I, I, the decision is the decision. Again, it's only in the hands of the attorney general now if she chooses to investigate further. Uh, I, as I said at the time, it does worry me that uh, the leaders of this uh, casino, uh, obviously, and the, the company uh, lied, misrepresented, uh, kept critical information away from the Gaming Commission. They're caught in a lie, and, and essentially they pay a $35 million fine, which is pocket change, $500,000 from the um, CEO, who they concluded, according to the Globe, did not uh, help uh, cover up allegations. But the commission decided that Maddox should have known this is the CEO more to investigate a complaint that came to his attention. This guy is in charge of the operation, and part of their findings is the company's board of director must provide training for the CEO in leadership development and and other executive skills. You know, a lot of people, if you read some of the op-eds, said he had to go that the majority, not majority, the biggest private uh, shareholder, 
the ex-wife of Steve Wynn also had to go because mm-hmm. she chose not to disclose this kind of thing. I worry about the precedent that this sets for huge corporations coming to our community and basically saying we don't have to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We'll slide by with either lying or not telling the whole truth. And then when we get caught, we'll pay a fine. That is large compared to others, but it's not large Excuse when me. you're opening a multi-billion dollar casino. Excuse me. I think the precedent has already been set. With what? I mean, maybe there's going to be some uh, prison jail term for this uh, this drug company trial that's going on right now. Mm-hmm. That The jury's been out for several weeks trying to decide the fate of this drug company that marketed opioids that and you know and, and lied about their addictive qualities and ended up killing hundreds and hundreds yeah, of thousands of people. They're defendants in a criminal trial. They yeah. could pay a serious price. Well, they, they paying might. Paying a fine they on your might. business well, account. Well, the Sackler family hasn't paid that a criminal correct. price. Have any of the Wall Street bankers done the perp walk? Or no, they Ma- haven't. Or Healy wants the individual Sacklers to pay a price. But can I present, and I want to try to be relatively fair here, because people know I was never crazy about casinos mm-hmm. to begin with. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to get to your calls, I promise, in a minute. Uh, we had a guy call who I think was representative of a lot of people who said to us, he has a job at the casino. He's one of, I think, yeah. roughly 5,000. Yeah. He said it's the best paying job he has ever had. Mm-hmm. It matters to him and his family a lot. Uh, obviously, it's a huge economic development thing. Obviously, it matters a lot to Everett uh, and I think surrounding communities. So there are clearly some pluses. I just have to say, you know, I feel a little dirty that the win operation got away with this with what I consider to be a slap on the wrist. Well, they may have gotten away with it, but you have lots of people with lots of jobs. I, I agree think that with that. Really I agree. Now, apparently, we have an Everett City Councilor on the line. So when we get him on, we're going to ask him about what the WBZ News Radio 1030. That was Michael McLaughlin who called in. Michael, call again. Uh, I don't Do know we if you, we lo- cut you off or you cut yourself off. Oh, yeah. We've talked to Michael a lot through the years. Yeah, because uh, uh, Kristen X, she's quoted in this Beth Titel piece. She didn't say very nice things about Everett and their concern about the beauty or lack thereof. And the she Traffic person? Yeah. She said, look at the other stuff around it. A power plant, a junkyard, an oil tank farm. It's probably the most attractive thing in the entire neighborhood, says Kristen Beck. I'm not really concerned about the look like a lot of people are. I'm concerned about what it does to the culture here. I don't think having a gambling palace minutes away from downtown Boston is great for Boston. But obviously, majority of people did. From the Tobin Bridge, it's kind of looming up there, this big brown thing. Well, I thought it was gold, whatever it is. Let's take some calls. And again, our apologies if we cut off the city councilor inadvertently from uh, Everett. Michael, if you are free, please call us again as soon as the line opens. Lynn, you're in Revere. You're first on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling. Hi. Hello. It's my first time calling. I love you guys every day. We love Thank that. You. Thanks, Lynn. What, what's your impression yes. of this, uh, the soon-to-be-opened uh, Encore Casino in Everett? My impression is my rent just went up $200. <laughs> Oh, no. I shouldn't and laugh. I'm That's sorry. That ugly thing every day on my reverse commute. I'm not actually in Revere. I live in Revere. Mm-hmm. I work in Tewksbury, Bill Ricca. It takes me an hour and a half just getting out of that city. Just getting out of the city. Yeah. And, you know, GE said they were coming. They're going to bring all these big jobs. Rent went up 200. Amazon said they might. Rent went up 300. And now the casino, that's another 200. Well, you know, be, uh, I, th- if that's true, and it probably is true, obviously property is going to get more valuable and prices will go up. The other issue that I haven't heard addressed, and maybe someone can call and tell us otherwise, I mean, Sullivan Square is a mess now, uh, and I know there were funds committed to making it more 
less of a mess. The traffic thing is an issue, too. I'm, I'm more concerned and about the, the big culture thing, big but rent is a huge deal. Lynn, we love your first call, and we wish you a lot of luck, and call again soon, please. Well, you know, with rents going up hundreds of dollars all through the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, a lot of people are talking now about some kind of a rent control coming back to prevent this happening because people are being priced out of apartments they've lived in for 20 and 30 and 40 years. I know. So maybe, I know. Uh, maybe this increasing a building will fuel that option for people. You know, you know what's interesting? You said, uh, I think this is what you were trying to say before the show we went on. You know, I think it was yesterday or the day before. This talks about how large entities really control everything. I know that's not a spectacular insight. We talked about the 152 to 3 vote in the House of Representatives on Beacon Hill to basically capitulate to Big Pharma over. and not and, and be antithetical to the interests of the state yes. and taxpayers and those who uh, need uh, drugs. Prescription drugs. And How many I, times have we seen stories in the paper about people who can't afford their insulin and are, are, are rationing out their insulin? And in some cases, the worst cases, they die. And, and, and the reason I made that connection here is because, uh, again, I, the jobs are terrific. The entertainment may be great. Some people like to gamble. That's Listen, the voters of Massachusetts voted not to repeal the casino uh, 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 law, but there are a number of issues that come along with it that I hope are dealt with. By the way, we now have him back on the phone. We've spoken to Michael a decent amount of times during this process, and he was kind enough to give us a buzz today. I know you're happy this morning. Michael, welcome to the show. How are you? Jim and Madri, thank you for having me, as you have many times in the past. We're happy to speak to you. So what's so what your reaction? I am overwhelmed with excitement. I think that what we have hoped for was jobs and economic growth to come to the city of Everett back in 2013 has finally come. I look forward to the weeks and months ahead of my residents going to work and the 5,000 careers that are on the line that are now going to be filled. Um, I invite both you and, and Marjorie Jim to come to Everett and tour our great city and see all the benefits that our community has to offer the greater Boston area. And it now allows us to put Everett back on the map, which has been my goal and one of my tasks since day one again. Well, can I tell you, Michael, we accept, uh, it, it, like in a second, uh, your offer, and uh, both for the casino and the community. But now that you got what you were looking for, do you have any concern as a public official about whether or not the Gaming Commission uh, uh, was as uh, stern with a an entity that had not been fully transparent with them as uh, when casinos had been, or you think the decision was a fair one? You know, I think the decision was a fair one. I think that uh, Mathematics, the CEO, had addressed that may, there were concerns and issues that had arisen in the past. And you know what? You can't look at the past. You can only look forward. And, and it's about a company and a business that's going to move forward and do things differently. And we heard during the Mass Game Commission hearings at the Convention Center a few weeks ago, uh, Jackie Crumb talk about an incident that happened in Everett and how the, how the company handled that situation. And it handled it um, to levels of um, pleasure to uh, the attorneys that were there. Um, so it's about looking forward, not looking backwards, and it's to learn what happened in the past to make sure it doesn't happen in the future. Michael McLaughlin, a city councilor in Everett who's been a big advocate all along. We really appreciate your call, and we accept your offer. We will be in touch. Thanks so much, Michael, for uh, making Thank a call. Thank you so much. Thank and by the way, we much, have in, we've invited Kathy Judstein, who's the relatively mm-hmm. new chair of the Gaming Commission on uh, we invite her, I know, on for television tonight. They have some sort of a hearing. She can't make it. We expect her to join us on TV and on radio in the next week or so. And we're looking forward to meeting her. I haven't been to Everett in years. 
I was traumatized there as a young police reporter when I had the wrong guy urinating on the lawn of the. Oh, you got sued for that. Was that Everett High School? Everett High School. And you had to pay a penny, and it was a penny or a dollar in damages. I think reporters don't have to pay the price when they make a mistake. If you haven't heard this, I paid big time. This after Marjorie (laughs) goes through this trial, she's on three days. (laughs) The guy comes over after she's lost the case, has to pay a dollar in damages. Father son thing. Yeah, she got the father son confused. The son did it. The father didn't. And when you after the judgment against you for one dollar. What does the father say to you out in the hall after the judgment? Oh, there's no hard feelings. I love your columns. <laughs> one I was of the traumatized. Great... I couldn't do a police story for like two years. John in Rye, New Hampshire. You're in... Oops. Uh, I think you are. John, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you uh, very much for calling, John. Hi. Good morning. Uh, uh, Jim, can I offer you a different uh, uh, perspective here? Sure. You can offer whatever you'd like, of course. Well, well, we get... So in Massachusetts, they, put, they decide there's going to be gambling. In yep. Everett... There, there basically took a basically a toxic dump site, it's almost a super fun cleanup area. Good point. And the winning, the winning bid or the winning uh, uh, casino operation comes in, spends uh, private money, cleans it up, and the gaming commission was supposed to vet the correct casino operation, make sure there's not a shady past, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then they basically come back and. They extort thirty million dollars out of this company. It, it just seems wrong. It, it, it's it's wh- why don't we fire the gaming commission and come up with a real gaming commission that actually looks into things? Well, I don't know, real or not. I, the one place where I think I agree with you is it wasn't the gaming commission's investigators, but rather the Wall Street Journal that uncovered the sexual misconduct of uh, Steve Wynn, which led to his removal from his uh, his. Uh, uh, operation. And I don't think $35 million is extortion. I think, frankly, $35 million is a tap on the wrist. Uh, but uh, the goal was to get the casino open. And again, Ms. Judd Stein, the chair of the commission, hopefully will be with us in the next week or so, and she'll make the uh, case. And by the way, the underlying thing you mentioned is factually accurate. This was virtual toxic dump site that is part of the Absolutely. deal. Wynn had to clean up, and that is a plus. And you heard Michael McLaughlin, who's a committed public servant over there, thinks this is the dream for their community. I assume it's going to the revenue, and thanks for your call, John, is going to improve the quality of the schools. There are a lot of good things that are going to happen. We're just going to get a lot of money. But for anybody that thinks, again, that it will not change the culture of this city, uh, and again, you may love the change. You're fooling yourself. Culture this is city. Boston. I don't buy it for a second. I really don't. What do you mean? I don't. It's in Everett. I mean, it's not like this is in the it's middle of the back bay. Five minutes in, from in downtown. The, yeah, people you're on ninety three. What's the big, what's the first you know building? What, you know what's going to change the culture? What? It's going to be more traffic. That's what it's going to do. There's going to be more traffic, well, so, and they're probably. Oh, and you've never complained about traffic. I complain about traffic all the time. I, I think I'm going to have to steer clear of Everett for, 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 and so for the fact the that, that that a huge multi billion dollar excuse me a multi billion dollar casino is minutes from downtown yeah. Boston. That's not going to change life in the city. What has has life dramatically changed in Springfield? They've, they've had one for a I while. I think it out has there. changed hugely. It has? By the way, what's your evidence? Springfield was Are people a totally overwhelmed by the casino no, no, no. By in the downtown way, Springfield. People, Springfield was a really downtrodden kind of area with virtually no economic well, anything Everett's a happening. Downtrodden area. I agree, too. but ever. By the way, what's the name of this hotel? Do you know what it's called? It's not called the Wing Casino. I know that. No, much. it's called Encore. Encore, Encore. Encore what? Encore. Bo- 
Encore Boston. Right, not Encore Everett. Well, exactly. Encore Boston Harbor. Well, would you call it Encore Everett? <laughs> you are horrible. I mean, no offense and to naive. Michael and Everett, Come but on. you know, it's kind of like if there were a casino down in my neck of the woods in Fall River, I don't think it would be Encore Fall River. They'd find some other way. They call it Encore you know by why? the Sea or something like that. Because it's about a minute and a half from downtown Boston. This is Jim, Boston's casino in Everett. If there's all this traffic, it's not mm-hmm. a minute and a half from downtown well, Boston. Well, that okay? is a very good point. We're talking about, yes, God. Encore Boston Harbor. <laughs> we always have to get the water in there somewhere. Now the casino will soon be open for business. Now it's been granted its license. Jim is appalled. We're asking you if this is a good or bad day for Everett. That conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about Encore Boston Harbor. Now the Gaming Commission has granted Wynn Resorts its license. That happened last night at 645. Uh, uh, there's no turning back. We're about to have a bit of Las Vegas strip in our own backyard. And I know a lot of people love that. A lot of people don't. We're taking your calls asking you if this is going to fundamentally change Boston. Marjorie incredibly thinks not. I don't quite get that. Are you dreading June when the casino is scheduled to open or... Are you so excited? You're literally marking the days off in your calendar so you can go eat at nice restaurants, see world-class entertainment, gamble your paycheck away. The number is 877-301-8970. You know, Robert just emailed. I, what did he say? I inadvertently erased the email, but and what he said was that uh, Pope John uh, High School in Everett mm-hmm. is closing down and Dollars oh. and Donuts, he says, oh. that developers are going to buy it in two seconds to build some non-affordable <laughs> housing. <laughs> Well, that caller, the first caller, I mean, obviously, when you have a property like this replacing a toxic dump, uh, property values are going to go up. That's good news, I guess, if you own your house. It's not so good news, as that first caller said, who lives in Revere, who's a renter. What are you laughing about? Robert also wants to know why they didn't advertise it as Encore Boston Harbor, walking distance to Chelsea. (laughs) That's not, this is also not funny. Uh, It's really not. Let's go to Aaron in a car. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Hi. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I wanted to mention I am firmly in your camp, Jim. I think that the culture in Boston is going to be changed in a way that is ultimately not positive. Um, My husband and I lived in the city for 10 years, uh, most recently in Charlestown. And while there were many reasons that we decided to leave the city, not small on the list was the fact that this casino is being built no. and the impact it's going to have to traffic that it's going to have to the residents of Charlestown, people cutting through to get there. I think that, uh, I think that there is a negative impact as well. And I think it's important that you guys are talking about both sides of it. Is that really true that part of your consideration, you and your husband's uh, consideration for moving was the building of the casino? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's going to be you go there for gambling, for drinking, for eating nice dinners, and you don't want to sit in that traffic driving home. You're going to cut through Charlestown. I don't want my kids walking on the street where potentially there's 
there's all of this traffic of people who aren't, you know, who are just there to visit the casino, get drunk at a bachelor party, and, and cut through my neighborhood to get home. Well, Carol, on a serious Aaron, note, we're Aaron. getting... Oh, it's Erin. I'm sorry. Uh, it's Carol that sent me oh, an email. Sorry. Some other people from Charlestown did, too, who are in the same boat as you. They're very concerned uh, living in Charlestown. And uh, Carol also thinks uh, you can see this casino from every place, and she thinks it's absolutely hideous. Erin, uh, thank you much yep. for your call, and we're sorry we lost you in Charleston. Down, but we're happy you gave us a buzz. 877-301-89. I cannot believe that you, I, you know, I never know when you take a position like this, uh-huh. if your position is on the merits or if it's just to aggravate me, which it is doing. And uh, so I'm guessing. I, listen, I, I don't think casinos are a good idea, but people in Massachusetts voted for them. Unfortunately, oh, I agree. I, they unfortunately, they came about right in the midst of the recession. Exactly when right. When everyone was so worried about unemployment. I don't think we do this in 2019. I agree with that, too. So we did it at a time when people were desperate and, and worried about losing their homes and losing their jobs. I don't think they're a good I, I, idea. But I, I just don't buy your idea. You know, Carol is right, and people in Charleston are right, and people that live next door to it are going to have some problems with traffic. But I just don't, uh, you know, buy your idea that this is ruination. I didn't of, say, of no, excuse me, I didn't say ruination. I've been very careful here. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows I'm not crazy about casinos. You are not. We've said it to the leaders of the casinos and the gaming commission, the prior gaming commission chair. Uh, Steve Crosby, when he has joined us, every, I mean, I'm not hitting it. What I'm saying is you may love what that it's coming, but I believe it is a dramatic cultural shift for this city. And again, you love it, you hate it, you, whatever it is, but you can't have a casino that is a new huge part of the skyline and a multi-billion dollar investment in a gambling palace that does not change the culture of the well, biggest city that is a mile away. What I'm more afraid of is that it's going to flop. I mean, we've seen all these stories yeah. about casinos that are not doing well at all. Underperforming, yeah. Underperforming. There was that great picture of the casino up in your neck of the woods where you used to work as a Catskills. kid. In the Catskills. In virtually State. empty. Yeah, virtually so, empty. So, um, you know, there's so many other ways to gamble now between the lottery and the sports betting and online betting and all these things. I just don't know. So uh, Marjorie and I have had two casino experiences together. Yes, we have. <laughs> One, we, after complaining about casinos long before yeah. the casino law, we drove to Connecticut. We don't That's know right. if we went to Fox. Foxwoods or Mohegan Sun. It's one that looked like a big piece of aluminum foil. Right. We went to it and we went right into the, uh, to the uh, what do you call it, the slots parlor, which I think, is, tell me if this is unfair. It was essentially like going into a Civil War hospital. Is that, <laughs> is that a fair? Well, my favorite thing was, was the first. A is, lot of people were very, very, very old. I'm raising my right hand, mm-hmm. and this is totally true. The first person there we was see. smoking. First of all, there was smoking, and so the smoke is like pretty much at eye level. I don't. I assume they don't allow smoking in the casinos here. I may be wrong, but I, I don't know about that. But secondly, there was a guy on my honor who's on a ventilator. He's on he, the you ventilator. You can't smoke when you're on a he ventilator. He takes, excuse me, he takes the ventilator he disconnects it, takes a puff from his <laughs> cigarette, and puts the ventilator back. That's one. Two, when Massachusetts did the slots parlor, a good friend of ours, Sheila, who's a listener, she and her husband invited us to come out to Plainville or Plainview or whatever it's it called. Was bleak. We went on night number two. How was that? Depressing. That was pretty depressing. Very depressing. First person we, we encountered. Again, this is our opinion. You're, uh, we know the majority of voters want these casinos. We respect, as Marjorie said, the popular will. They voted for them. Uh, the second person we met, we had Sheila bring us to what we had read in the Globe, was the high-ticket, $100-a-bet uh, uh, slot machine. Yeah. And so there's one guy in this little area, and he's slipping 
uh, $100 bills as he's talking to us. He's slipping $100 bills into the machine. And Marjorie goes over, reporter, she says, what do you do? I'm a carpenter. And we were both going like, well, he's a carpenter. Carpenters make good money. Uh, Where are you a carpenter? He says, well, I've been unemployed for a year and a half. And, And we're literally, he is feeding, talking to us as he is slipping $100 bills into this slot machine. And so, again, but you know my friend and your friend, the late, great Chet Curtis, you know, he never yep. gambled. Yep. He loved casinos because he went there for the food and the entertainment. Well, I think, and a lot of people I love that kind of thing. That's kind of exciting, too, to go over there. And people, the, the great shows that they have on, you always see these great acts at these casinos. You always see the billboards on 93 advertising what's going on. Why don't you recreate the embarrassment that you suffered, should have suffered? Well, we would have people in from Wynn Casino early on, which we did pretty regularly, some very decent people who were really accessible. What would you always say you were excited about? This is so pathetic. The floating furniture. Right. I'm talking about gambling and, and crime and other have... concerns and traffic. Marjorie is saying how excited she is because she's seen in Las Vegas the wind resorts. Yeah. The casinos have floating it looks furniture. looks like the furniture is floating on these lakes. Yeah, well, really... that's Apparently important they don't issue. have that. And oh, have... oh we're out of time. Sad. Oh, we're out of time. We were just getting going on the casino. Okay, well, we're out of time. I'm sorry. Up next is our medical ethicist. The next caller the, the, on the call screen says, I hate this casino and hope it falls into the ocean. <laughs> Rosemary, <laughs> sorry we didn't get to you from Cambridge. That's a woman with an opinion. <laughs> okay. Thank you. It's not, I don't Up think it's next happening. is our medical ethicist, Art Kaplan. He's got a bunch of great medical stories coming up. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie again. When Julian Assange was arrested at the Ecuadorian embassy, the media were worried about the welfare of his famous cat. Meanwhile, a Boston-based doctor was worried about Julian Assange himself, saying he wasn't getting adequate medical treatment and that his living conditions were worse than those of many prisoners. Joining us to talk about this, how to conmari the germs and bacteria in your home, and other medical headlines is Art Kaplan. He is the Drs. William F. and Virginia Connolly mini-chair and the director of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's Lingo Medical Center. He's also the co-host of the Everyday Ethics podcast. Hello, Art Kaplan. Hello, hello. And to you. Hello, Art Kaplan. Well, you know, I hadn't really given much thought to this until I saw Julian Assange be kind of dragged out of the embassy there looking, looking bizarre. And, and this story, a Boston doctor, Sandra Crosby, uh, says he he was in terrible shape, suicidal, oral surgery, in terrible pain from dental problems. So what was the deal? Well, you know, I think it is fair to say that he was imprisoned for a long period of time. He was in a tiny space and set up the Ecuadorian embassy for people, guests, to live there. And so they gave him a, I don't know if you saw the video, Marjorie, it was really a little teeny, teeny, space he was yeah. in. He couldn't really wander around the rest of the embassy. Whether he made people aware that he had dental issues or health issues, I don't know. I mean, partly it's on the patient to say, I need some help. Maybe he did. I'm not sure about that. Some critics of him are going to say, well, some people would say, well, you know, you might as well have been in prison. Well, that may be where he's going. So, he may get better health care in a prison than he would as a kind of unwelcome guest. After a while, the Ecuadorians seem to get tired of him, and he apparently isn't the nicest fellow on a good day. So, you know, we do guarantee um, 
health care to prisoners. It may not be top quality, and uh, there are plenty of gripes that it's not honored, but at least in paper, there's some protection. If you're, like, holed up in the embassy or hiding out uh, in some uh, diplomatic space, you don't have any rights. It's completely up to the host to decide what to do with you. So, oddly, he may have been worse off. It's possible. You know, by the way, the answer to a question you posed midway there about whether or not any request had been made for him to go to the dentist, apparently somebody on Assange's behalf had made a request to the British government that they give him, guarantee him safe passage to a hospital, and it was mm. repeatedly rejected. So uh, uh, at least that well, thing seems to be It wasn't even clear that he was getting food I mean, were the she Ecuadorian? said she had to go out and bring him food. Yeah, Dr. so we don't Crosby even know was, was the embassy feeding him, and they must have been because he wasn't leaving to get food. Well, you know that there was change in leadership of Ecuador, and that's why I'm not yeah. defending him, but that's what happened from a liberal leadership to a much more uh, a conservative one, and the latter was obviously not happy with the fact that Assange was holed and, and up you know, in the I embassy. Think all, I think it's true that they also started to get tired of him, so yeah. maybe they were trying to get rid of him by, you know, not being uh, good hosts. Still, if you want to go to the hospital, you want to go to the dentist, something should be able to be worked out there. But again, it's all diplomatic pressure and almost more like a uh, police negotiation. You're, you, you would have more rights if you were in prison, at least to claim them. I'm not, I don't want to get romantic about it and say you're going to get them, but you'd have more of a paper basis for uh, saying you're not treating me right than you do when you're holed up in an embassy. So, Art, I'm reading a story on the NBC News website about implanting some brain gene of a human into a monkey, which I have to say I read twice and could not understand. But then there's somebody quoted who has the same name as you, but obviously can't be you, because this, this Art Kaplan says, I don't think all animal-human genetic hybrid experiments are unethical. Obviously, the real Art Kaplan would. Am I not correct about that? Well, if someone would put a monkey gene into my brain, maybe I'd be a little more. Could you explain the under, yeah. underlying uh, uh, research and why you think it's okay in certain circumstances to do some experimentation like this? But start with what they were trying to do, please. So this is another one of our. Oh, oh here go the Chinese yeah. out on the frontier again. Experiments. This is putting a gene that is known to produce chemicals that uh, contribute to intelligence and contribute to perception. In this case, I think it's specifically memory. They put it into a young monkey. The young monkeys, some of them died, by the way, in the experiment, but the ones that survived um, seemed to perform better on memory tests. So this is sort of, uh-oh, you know, you're humanizing monkeys and making monkeys perhaps more human-like in terms of consciousness and thinking. I don't know that that's true. It's hard to interpret what the heck's going on if you're making a single gene change and you're getting a little bit better, better performance, let's say, on going through a maze or something. But at least it raises questions like, should we be fooling around with monkey brains? Yeah, exactly. human genes in there? But my comment was, look, sometimes we put in genes into, let's say, a pig liver, and the aim there is not to have something better to eat, but it's to have something we could transplant. And oh. so the idea is tune down the pig immune system so it doesn't get rejected by okay. humans, and then maybe you could use organs like a liver from a pig from a transplant. That's the, it's a different kind of animal hybrid. It is a hybrid. You're still putting human genes into, uh, say, the pig organ system, but you're not worried about it becoming more, quote-unquote, human. You're just trying to 
make it easier to transplant. So that, I, I think that has a future. And by the way, that is going on. People are doing that work right now. Whether it will work out, whether you can actually use animals as sources of organs, I don't know. We'll see. But I'm not opposed to doing that. Monkey brains? Uh, I don't like that experiment. Well, what the argu- argument the other side makes, of course, is that this will help study the disorders of the human brain and, and how the brain forms. I didn't even understand that, frankly. Well, neither do I, but I'm uh, asking you Basically, Art. you can trace the gene in development and see what other neurons it might be affecting, what the chemicals might be doing. It's traceable because it has human protein characteristics that aren't normally there, so you can see what's going on. Although I have to say, little snidely, I've never seen any experiment ever conducted where somebody didn't say, well, you know, it could contribute to our understanding of the basic biology. of that. Well, it could. I mean, everything could. I guess you could pour antifreeze into the monkey brain and say it could contribute to something. One of the scientists who did the experiment, by the way, said he came to think it wasn't such a great idea. I know. And you don't see that very often. <laughs> so why'd you do it? You know, by the way, here's my, my approach to this, I have to say, is fairly selfish, but I want to be honest. Anything that may have a harmful effect on the bacon experiment experience, <laughs> yeah. I'm not willing to risk. Is, is that? Hey, by the way, yeah. this is uh, a cousin, not using whole animals, but you know the Impossible Burger. If you guys, sure, we talk about a that? lot. Yeah, we talk yeah. about. Yeah. So that's basically genetically engineered meat, right? You're going to grow it from meat cells and turn it into a hamburger or a steak, and that is the future of. Uh, I think meat Speak production, you don't need animals, and you don't have to kill them, and you don't have to feed them corn with fertilizer that wrecks all the rivers. And it'll raise an interesting question. Should vegetarians eat meat that is comes from green production things that don't involve killing animals? We're talking to Art Kaplan, our medical ethicist. Okay, Art Kaplan. Now, I read this story from the New York Post, and it quotes one of your colleagues there at NYU Langone uh, Medical Center about, first about, this is about spring cleaning, what we're all it's supposed to be doing. Story. That every, <laughs> she's got to be, or he's got to be kidding me. After every meal, you're supposed to clean your brand new sponge with a solution of one part bleach and nine, part, uh, nine parts water after every meal cleanup. And then I couldn't even get to bed last night after I read this story. I was so nervous, afraid that my what bed else? was going to be attacking me. We're supposed to clean our mattress cover every three months, wash our pillows, and give them a monthly airing by hanging them outside or putting them in a dryer in a no-heat cycle. Do you do all this stuff, Art? I do. I have no life. I <laughs> hanging my pillows up or sanitizing my kitchen. No, I do not. No, I yeah, do not. We're not, um, not about dead skin cells and food particles and our mattress cover. I mean, I was beside right. myself. It's, it's uh, Jim's Disneyland of bacteria, basically. <laughs> I got news for you. I have an uh, NYU connection, too. The sponges I'm using, I bought when I was at NYU <laughs> Law School. I mean, this, this is so ridiculous. And we're all supposed to buy these air filter well, things, I, too. I'll say a few things of sanity in okay. midst of uh, Felix Unger-like obsessiveness <laughs> about cleanliness. Yeah. One is you should throw your sponge out. Forget right. the cleaning exactly. your sponge. Exactly. How like often? How, how often should you? I, don't know, I throw mine out once a week. Um, oh my god. How much do they cost? I mean, They're pretty that's cheap. Like something you could cycle around. And okay. I do think sponges are known to be, you know, horrific bacteria capture devices. So. Throw those out more. So would you suggest we throw out our mattresses every three uses, too? Or? No, but it, I, I will say this, and I hope my nephews are listening. It doesn't hurt to wash the bed sheets once in a while. That's oh, that true. is true. That's true. That is true. That is true. That but is true. but the, aren't so they suggest? 
Isn't it, isn't whoever wrote this thing suggesting the sheets are not the solution? You need a match, some Get sort down of the mattress, mattress pack. cover. Yeah, kind the of mattress thing. cover. Well, they're supposed to protect you from the, as I said before, the dead skin cells, the sweat, and the food That's particles. Is, yeah. Not oh, to mention yeah, the yeah, insects. Dead skin cells. Try this. How about all the little creatures that sit there and eat the dead skin? Yeah, the cells? dust mites. Get into that. There's yeah. That's disgusting. Tiny, tiny insect-like things so every, that are always around. Every, but I'll say this. I think we're more adapted to the, that stuff than uh, – I'm sure it's not good for you, but I think we also do start to build an immune system and start to get adapted a little bit to the idea that there's going to be these dangerous things rattling around out there potentially. So I don't know. I don't know. The mattress cover, I do, I, I do try to wash the sheets frequently, but I'm not – Throwing out the mattress cover. I no, me neither. A window, <laughs> disinfecting the entire kitchen. Eh, I don't know. I, I again, people clean, but then you, did you ever like clean your kitchen and then move and move your refrigerator and sort of take a gander? Oh, no. it's disgusting. What's under the refrigerator? Not to mention what's underneath the stove. That's even worse. But let me so ask those you something. Two bother me more because they're near like the food. What about filtering your air? He's talking about Forget in, in the story um, products it. like Tech Brand Aware. I don't even know how to pronounce it, or or HEPA HEPA filters. HEPA, HEPA. Filters, yeah. HEPA. Yeah. So HEPA. we should be doing all that well, some too. Some people do it. So, I mean, some of our listeners are going to be doing it because they have allergies. Yeah, and it helps with the pollen. Okay. So they have those. They look like sort of stand-up big fan size. Things. Yeah, I've seen them. They have UV. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, you know, it's fine. They're uh, expensive. Uh, are they? Yeah. I, I have a little bit of a gripe in a different way. If, uh, if you go to Asia, and you see it now in the States a little bit too when we have visitors from Korea or Japan or China, they're all wearing masks, right? A lot of people wearing masks Lottery. all the time. Yeah. 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 So, fine, you want to protect against pollution. Here's an idea. How about we get rid of the pollution? I mean, it's nice to filter the air in your apartment, but could we like have less pollution in the air of New well, that's true. Boston or but you, you know, know, it's like don't blame me. I often feel like even though the air is polluted, we just read there was a story about the pollution getting worse in Massachusetts. I'm a big believer in opening the windows, but maybe because uh, it does seem like you want to get fresh air inside your house. How long are you going to spend on this stupid story, by what? the way? How long are we going to spend on this stupid story? Ben Fra Okay, can we move on to something? No, that I wanted to ask about opening the windows. Open, open the windows. Opening the windows. He was huge on the health benefits. Now, it I'm comes with him. this old idea that diseases sort of are in bad air. Yeah. You know, the, the miasma is a term that used to be used. I mean, I think fresh air is nice, and I think it can be uh, easier to sleep because sometimes a little cooler and that sort of thing. But I don't know about that. I you know, you know what I always do. Ben Frank, the the health speaking of Ben oh, Frank, sponge. every time I open a window, I put out a kite with a key on it. I don't know if you. <laughs> I don't know why, but there's that natural impulse. I am okay. done with this. This story right. is just to me. Hey, hey, hey! Here's a Ben Franklin story. What's that? Ben Franklin invented the lightning rod, right, to protect against the lightning course. strikes. Yes. And you know what he charged for it, scientists out there? What? Nothing. He gave it away for free. Really? No patent. Did he? That, that was what scientists should do. How's that for an old-fashioned idea? That is a great one. Hey, uh, Art, this is a really horrible story, and I'm wondering how atypical I hope it is. Uh, the, in Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina sends this young man, uh, CNN writes this story, uh, a 30-some thousand dollar check 
for uh, uh, it's an out of it, it, to reimburse for out of network care, and then he theoretically is supposed to uh, pay the out of network provider. Before we get to why Blue Cross Blue Shield North Carolina does this, uh, it turns out as the mother tells CNN, the uh, young man was an addict, uh, and a day or two after he got the thirty three thousand three hundred ninety nine dollar check. He withdrew something like $13,000, and a day later he was dead for obvious reasons. I mean, it's just it, it, horrible. And when I started reading the story, I'm saying, well, it's horrible, but it's unavoidable. And then I read, and it's totally avoidable. Could you explain what the alleged rationale on the part of the insurance provider is for mailing a check to uh, the individual for him or her to deal with the out-of-network people? Instead of the instead people of directly that to the provider, the right? Money, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the basic idea is you went out of network. The insurance company deals with networks that they set hospitals and clinics and stuff, doctors, and their paperwork system deals with that. But if you go out of network, you get some money back, but they don't send it there because they don't have a billing relationship, and they don't like you going out of network. Exactly. So it's going to be a little harder for you. You're going to have to pay the bill. You know, I think. Wait, wait, wait. And wait, let me add one thing to that. And because it's going to make it more difficult for the out of network provider to be paid, they want to create an incentive for that out of network provider to become an in in network provider. So they're basically using the poor patient, in this case, the dead patient, as the middle person to get their desired end. I'm sorry, go ahead. Right. So they're leveraging all these incentives, if you will, by sending money directly to patients or people who want to be patients or were patients. Mm-hmm. I think most Americans, I saw a survey that said something like, if they had a debt that was more than $500, they couldn't pay it because they didn't have that kind of reserve handy, you know, cash yeah. available, liquid cash. Who thinks if you send somebody a check for $33,000, that a good, forget about being an addict, just being anybody, is going to not look at that and say, hmm, Pay the bill, pay the rent, pay the heat. I like my telephone. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's the stupidest system. I mean, again, we have what could only be generously described as a cockamamie health system. I mean, putting patients in the position to leverage the network and make it easier for the company not to do the paperwork and to try and get you not to go outside the network it's not. But wait a second. You know, ordinarily, when I ask a question, which I know is a stupid one that I'm about to ask, the answer to the stupid question is obviously it, business will oppose it. But I can't think of why the answer to this question is that. Why isn't there a statute that requires that when an insurance company is compensating you for uh, out-of-network services, that the check is always required to go to the provider. I mean, it would seem that everybody would be, oh, well, the people who are unhappy with it, I just said, are the uh, uh, the insurance provider because they want to extort the out-of-network entity into becoming in-network. So that answers my question. So, I believe the answer you're looking for is lobbying. Yeah. Okay. That's hard. This is a hard, people should read this story. This is a hard, this young man, I would Horrible. argue, is dead because this check was sent to him. He was in and out of rehab repeatedly. His mother was working with him, a young man in his 30s, and he used 13,000 of the 33,000 bucks to buy drugs. So this is another horrible story. Someone told me they had a a story about a 19-year-old got like a $65,000 check. 
$19,000. You don't have to be an addict to wind up having a party that might kill you or doing something completely, you know, imprudent, shall we say. Right, and exactly. By the way, I remember when I was a kid and I had health insurance for the first time, I did exactly what you described. I got a check, which wasn't huge, a few hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. I used it for either fun or to pay an expense. And then I was doubly screwed because I used money that I wasn't entitled to. And two, then I owed the money to the out-of-network or whatever the provider was. So it's it's a horrible thing. In any case, we're talking to Art Kaplan. Uh, Art Kaplan, this is another awful story. Um, It says that in uh, 28 states, women that sign do not resuscitate, that are choosing not to be resuscitated, do not resuscitate. And these are young women because they're women that are getting pregnant. They give the example of this 33-year-old woman who was pregnant 14 weeks and had an embolism that the hospitals in 28 states won't honor those requests and so the woman lies in a vegetative state until she gives birth. So people don't understand this. It's another one of the consequences of our unending abortion uh, controversies. Living wills, that's what you're talking about, Marjorie. You're filling out the advanced directive. And just for reminders, I think we should all do that. That's picking someone to make decisions for you or laying out, you know, what you would want uh, if you weren't able to communicate. But in a huge number of states, um, the uh, living will is automatically voided if you're pregnant, meaning even a day pregnant. Um, It doesn't count. Your husband can't make decisions or your partner can't make decisions for you because the state voided the living will. In some states, it mandates that if there's a chance of giving birth, if you're pregnant, you have to do that. No one can disconnect you or stop you, even if you're terminally ill and aren't going to be, even if you might be killed by trying to give birth. So, you know, again, I understand the concerns that maybe uh, living wills might be complicated by a pregnancy that you weren't thinking about and that it has to be addressed, but to just void them seems to be unconstitutional. I mean, somebody should be in court challenging that. And it makes no sense to not even notify people <laughs> that this is true. You fill the thing out and nobody tells you. Well, also, I mean, th- this is an untold agony for the family. Uh, absolutely. You're going to oh, yeah. watch your yeah. daughter or your wife or your mother be kept alive by against machines. Your wishes. And, and, and against their wishes. Right. You know, you, and we then, and then who, who pays? Does the family's insurance company pay? Does the state pay? And then um, th- what happens to the baby? I assume the baby can go back to the family, but I don't know. Do they take away the baby? I mean, this whole thing sounds no, like something but it's, out know, of the handmaid's tale. No, yeah, if there's no, uh, uh, maybe they don't know who the daddy is, or there's no dad around or whatever, not willing to step to up, I think what happens is the people who are there kind of, paying for and watching the medical care kind of get this new baby, even if they're elderly grandparents or something. So could go for adoption. I'm not saying they wouldn't take that route. But again, when people say to me, and you just mentioned it, Handmaid's Tale, if you ever want to see a place in American policy where women's lives are and decision-making are diminished, demeaned, under assault, this is it. Yeah, no kidding. So, uh, so do we have time to do no, one more well, story? We no, don't. We, we don't. have to go to the Everyday Ethics Podcast because we talk too long, Art Kaplan. I'm sorry. What is the Everyday <laughs> Ethics po- Podcast? We'll so talk about the dentist next week. Okay, okay. <laughs> After you uh, throw out your sponges, we That's right. the dentist. So um, there's a new malaria vaccine. Good news. And they're starting to roll it out in a couple of places in Africa, Kenya, Ghana. 
Malaria is a horrible killer in those countries. By the way, it used to be in the United States too. What we did was we poisoned everything with DDT and got rid of the mosquitoes and the birds and many other things as well. That was a silent spring book for ancient listeners. Yes. Rachel Carson, remember yes. all that? Yes. But they haven't done that in Africa. Uh, but they're really ridden with malaria. So that's great. But the malaria vaccine is about 29 to 33% effective, I think. Wow. So the question is, do you roll that out? And you might say, well, why not? It's better something than nothing. If you make it and the factories are built to do it, if you get a much better vaccine in five years, it's not clear that they would convert, you know, financially to the 80% effective vaccine. So it's a tough choice. Boy, What's that is good a great enough? ethical issue. That is a great one, actually. That's up. So tune in and you will get the answer. But my, I'll hint, I'm not sure this is good enough, even though it means killing people in the here and now. Wow. Okay, okay Kaplan, that is a good one. Thank you so much, Art. We'll be listening. All righty. Talk to you, Art. I, Kaplan, joins us every week. He's the doctors, William Meff and Virginia Conley, Committee Chair and Director of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU Langone Medical Center. He's also the co-host of the Everyday Ethics Podcast. Coming up, our national security expert, Juliet Kayyem, joins us to go over the latest hearings from measles to Mueller, and the hearings are going on right now. She's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, it's two tales of one investigation. Turns out William Barr's four-page summary of the Mueller report is at odds with Robert Mueller. Days after Barr released his synopsis, Mueller sent a letter to the Justice Department to say that Barr got it wrong. Now the question is, how will Democrats use this today during Barr's testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee? Also, will Mueller take the next step to testify himself? couple of minutes, national security expert Julia Kayyem joins us for this and more. WGBH executive arts editor Jared Bowen is here for his take on the blockbuster Avengers Endgame and Amazing Grace, a documentary about Aretha Franklin's 1972 gospel shows, which took decades to see the light of day. We'll ask him, was it worth the wait? Then former presidential advisor and CNN political analyst David Gergen is here to talk about politics and his other passion, the Handel and Haydn Society. That and more is next on Boston Public Radio. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH, live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. Hey, it's Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to hour number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Hello again, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. So here with us in Studio 3 for her take on Robert Mueller's uncharacteristic rebuke of William Barr's four-page summary of his own investigation, how the Democrats are putting it to use so far today during Barr's testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and other headlines is national security expert Juliet Kayyem. Juliet's on the faculty of Harvard's Kennedy School, an analyst for CNN. Juliet, nice to see you. Nice to see you both. Hello, Juliet Kayyem. So you are our Mueller report. Uh, yeah, we thought we had uh, grown out of it. I we mean, have I not. Think I th- we're, we're back. Apparently grown out of it. At the end of March, people probably know by now, 
uh, Robert Mueller had sent a letter to the Attorney General mm-hmm. revealing his deep concern over how Mr. Barr had handled the release of the special counsel's findings, said he uh, caused a lot of confusion. He disagreed uh, with the way Mr. Barr went ahead. Mr. Barr uh, basically said there was no disagreement this morning in these hearings, and it's all fallen upon yes. party lines. Uh, the Republicans seem to be defending uh, the president in the Mueller report, the Democrats not. And the Democrats are questioning whether because on April 9th and 10th, days after mm-hmm. uh, uh, Barr had received this letter from Mueller, uh, when asked uh, if he understood that Mueller's prosecutors were upset we about— have the sound. Oh, we have the sound. Let's play Here's the sound. Here's Charlie Crist, who's a, a Democrat member, former governor, Republican at the time, asking Barr on April 10th, which is, what, 14 days after he got the letter and had that 15-minute conversation. He, Barr, got the letter from Mueller and had the conversation with Mueller about reports that the Mueller team was dissatisfied with the summary of the investigation. Reports have emerged recently, uh, General, that members of the special counsel's team are frustrated at some level with the limited information included in your March 24th letter, uh, that it does not adequately or accurately necessarily portray the report's findings. Do you know what they're referencing with that? No, I don't. <laughs> I think, I, think uh, I suspect that they probably wanted, you know, more put out. And, of course, the next day, uh, Senator Chris Van Hollen from Maryland asked uh, whether Mueller supported Barr's finding. This is he asked this to, of course, Barr, that there was not sufficient evidence to conclude that President Trump had obstructed justice. And to that question, uh, Barr said, I don't know. Uh, but meanwhile, as I said before, this all went down along Parsons' lines. They're taking Can a we, lunch wait, wait, break wait, wait, now. Wait. Can we get back to I can't believe you're glossing over this. He perjured himself he in front of this House. He well, did. that's what the Democrats I mean, say. No, he it's not. Not, it's not the, and that's, and there's no both sidesism. He was asked a direct question, and he lied. He was in possession of a letter of which Mueller expressed concerns about the four-pager and representations of the report. Uh, there's no. He said no. He was unaware. That is a lie. I just, and he I spoke. Mean, he just, had a 15-minute conversation, according to him, yes. after he got the letter. Yeah. It, so he got just, a letter and talked it's to just, Mueller. It's, it's, you know, we don't have to part. We, we just like, we're like in the age of we don't need to to be shy. He perjured himself. He lied. What one does with that is uh, is a political answer. But let's just, you know, I'm just like in the world of sort of let's just lay the foundation down that there was a uh, a lie. It wasn't an obfuscation. It wasn't a, well, you could interpret the facts differently. He was asked a specific question and the answer he gave uh, was inaccurate and therefore a lie. And he perjured himself. What you do with the lie is now the political question. But apparently we have a much bigger problem, which is, of course, if I were following along this morning, Benghazi. Benghazi is a huge issue for Senate Republicans right now in this bar hearing. It's, it's, it's like literally you just want to do a flashback. It's, you know, they're raising Hillary Clinton and the emails and Benghazi and not the constitutional issue that we're in right now. You know, so, it, so uh, this just, sorry. if this just is the way it's going to be, I guess, mm. where the Republicans defend the president no matter yeah. what. Yeah. Yeah. Until, but, you know, there's another issue. When you, you shoot said someone this to on me, Fifth Avenue, I guess. Said, when they'll, we're be, watching, they'll be defenders. When we're watching the bar hearing before we're on the air today from 10 to 11, roughly, you said to me it's something. This is Marjorie said to me something like, "You know, Mueller just doesn't get it," or that. No. And I have to agree. I mean, we know he sent the only public communication he has ever done is after the BuzzFeed thing came out, right. saying the report a couple of months ago, where it said that that uh, that the 
the suggestion that Mueller had concluded that the president of the United States directed Michael Cohen to lie to Congress was, quote, not accurate. But he left all of America hanging because as we, we had this discussion with mm-hmm. you, you had it on CNN. What does not accurate mean? What was not accurate? Well, exactly. And here Same again, it seems to me, while we keep, you know, Barr was asked this morning for the, at least the second time, you have any problem with Mueller testifying? No, I don't. The critical issue is if Mueller is the patriot that everybody says yes. he is, Republicans and Democrats, doesn't he have an obligation to affirmatively offer the people of the United States what he can see, believes to be the truth without being begged to testify in front of Congress? Well, I mean, he's the begging is, is the White House's fault, not not Mueller's fault. It's just finding a date in which Mueller can come. But I'm. I guess I th- I'm just which much I think more... is going to be a big disappointment it, because he never says anything straightforward. In this letter, he says, there is now public confusion about critical aspects of the results of our investigation. Because of your four-page well, letter. Yeah, but what critical aspects? I mean, can you, you know, as a reporter who like, has been writing stories my entire right. life, get to the damn point here. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, what are so, you talking wh- about? So I guess I'm just, I don't want to say, like, you know, I'm sympathetic to Mueller, obviously. Uh, I believe Mueller is smarter than Barr. And I certainly believe that he's smarter than Giuliani. And I just think that, you know, Mueller is never he never wants a process ish complaint against himself. Right. Because once you're in the process issue, should you or shouldn't you, whatever, like rather than the substance, um, uh, then we're fighting. Then then he has to you know sort of fall along partisan lines. So what he's doing is he I mean, the, the significance of, of his letter to Barr should not be viewed as, well, it wasn't enough. He he memorialized in writing, anyone who knows about building a case, you memorialize, as Comey did in his interactions with Trump, he memorialized in, in, in writing his concurrent mm-hmm. concerns with what Bill Barr did. He has now made himself available for testimony. Um, he has uh, and will presumably testify. He has a report out that essentially says the Russians uh, uh, impacted our election. The Trump people welcomed it. And I've got 10 categories of behavior that if it were anyone but the president of the United States, uh, we would have indicted at this stage. And that's and that's what he's going to yeah, testify to, because the first question, Mueller, Juliet Kayyem, I've covered a million trials yeah. and you probably argued a million cases. I've heard so many prosecutors get so lost in the trees, they miss the point and the forest, and the jury doesn't understand what the heck they're talking about. They get so wrapped up in this minutiae. He's got the opposite problem. He never gives you the minutiae in a, in a, in a, in a, in a letter that makes it clear. Mm-hmm. It's all in the report, but America is not plowing through a 450-page report. Say what you mean. If, I guess I just I mean, I, I, I just assume that he did say what he mean, that the representations made by Barr were not accurate what as representations, to the representations in the four pager. I guess I, I guess I feel like, like you were just sort of complaining about, you know, people, you know, everyone's parsing little things. I I read that letter as Mueller is setting up his case. This is memorialization number one. Who knows what else he has? Mueller has never ceased to surprise me. Um, and so I'm I'm sort of – this is not surprising to me. This is not – this. Th- there's nothing – you know, the only surprising thing, of which I can't – the psycho, psychology of this is what I can't get about Barr, is Barr either thinks that we're stupid or he's stupid. Because as I've been saying since I've been on, like, you really could not have done worse – 
if your bar for, I believe, not only your rep- his own reputation, but for uh, uh, for believing that this process was valid. You know, now that I believe that Barr is a partisan hack, which I did not believe two months ago, in other words, that he views himself as the White House counsel, not the uh, not the attorney general. Now that I believe that I have no confidence in the process. And now you've lost me. Right. And if you've lost me in terms of process, that's that's the polling numbers you're seeing. That's why we're whatever dancing we're doing right now, there's clearly going to be some impeachment thing. Right. You've lost the press. Press is so angry right now, and you lost Mueller. I just you, you know, know what I crave. Uh, maybe this is the point that Marjorie was making about you know every Republican. Two this, and two is four. I want <laughs> yeah, one. I want one Republican to say the following to Attorney General Barr. Attorney General, I'm a big fan of yours. I love Donald Trump and everything he does. Yeah. However, I am troubled by the fact that you appeared to have lied mm. to Congress no under oath when you told the House of Representatives. That you knew nothing about Mueller's concerns when, in fact, you did. And by the way, I'm so glad you said what you said, Joel. This is not one of these close questions. This yeah. is not nuanced. No. He was asked a very clear, direct question by represent by Congressperson Christ, and he gave a very direct answer. No, I don't. I don't know. I think I suspect they probably wanted more out when he knew exactly what Mueller his concerns were because he'd gotten a letter and had the phone call. In any case, we're talking to Julia. Yeah, Kyan. so Barr is spending today essentially doubling down and re-perjuring himself. Um, and uh, no, I mean, just, you know, and so, but one way to look at our, this moment in time and maybe, you know, I'm just, I, now I need to take the long view because, you know, there won't be movement, you know, there there won't be movement by the Republicans until there's movement, right? This is how Watergate worked until you sort of say, you know, Whatever you do in terms of parsing the legal questions about whether it was obstruction or whether it was collusion, you know, I'd like someone to ask Barr, you know, a simple question is, forget the law at this stage. You know, in the Mueller report, he says Donald, you know, he says Donald Trump's team did this or Donald Trump did that or Donald Trump tried to do this or tried to fire that person. Do you think that is conduct consistent with the president's oath of office? That's the only question I want. Now, Barr might not answer that question or answer it in the uh, uh, in the in the affirmative. But that's you know, for me, that's the that's the fundamental issue here. And and uh, if that question, you know, uh, if we if we don't have a resolution today, part of this process is a resolution for history, because I do believe history will judge this in a way that it ought to be judged. Which By the is... way, Patrick Leahy from Vermont just asked oh, yeah. uh, uh, Barr about, uh, he said, I feel your, this is according to CNN, I feel your previous testimony on Mueller, the one we were referring to, his objections, your summary, pardon me, this earlier this morning, yeah. was purposely misleading. Can we try to get the sound or at least the transcript of what uh, the response of uh, Attorney General Barr is so we in can White share House with our audience. Rhode Island was going after him as well. Yeah. yeah. So, Juliet, can we change gears? Because you wrote a really tough and oh. I think totally appropriate Thank piece. Thank you. Because I am di- – I know I know that the public health community does not like what I said. Well, I don't really care about the public Thank health you. community in this context. We've <laughs> discussed vaccinations ad nauseum with Art Kaplan. We've I discussed know. exemptions from a certain exemptions and w- what are appropriate and what are not. Tell people what your, your okay, point so was in the Washington Post piece. Yeah, so um, I wrote a column for the Washington Post, and part of it was just I sort of woke up really angry about this the, the measles outbreak, um, partially because it's so 
avoidable um, and it's individual conduct that is causing it. But the other part was it's just such a depressing statement about America today that like, we're like we're like falling back into things that we uh, that we had already um, solved. Um, so we have a paradigm for vaccination in this country, which is, you know, it has two features. One is it's the public health paradigm, right? It is a sense of education, voluntariness, um, um, and and uh, we we have strong vaccination programs so that communities are more resilient. We also have a scientific issue, which is you need a certain amount of your population to be vaccinated so that the herd immunization works across the board. So what we're seeing now is um, we're seeing two types of anti-vaxxers. So there's the low information anti-vaxxers, which I'm more sympathetic to. Isolated communities, what you're seeing in the Hasidic Jewish community, communities that are being targeted by Russian trolls and bots and others. And that's a misinformation community. So your answer is the public health regime, which is we need to educate, we need to get them, uh, get their communities resilient. But you have another part of the anti-vax movement, which is the part that I focus on, which is not the low information group, but the stupid information group. And when you say that I came on strong, I am done with these people. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, two plus two equals four in my world. Not a single legitimate study uh, links vaccination to autism. The original study that launched the anti-vax movement has been so clearly debunked um, uh, since 20 years ago, whenever it came out. And we have a president, of course, who sort of dances around the, the anti-vax movement or sort of seems to support it. He came out relatively strongly a week ago saying we all need to get our shots. Can you stop there for a second? On this one, he des- I think he deserves credit after completely in a debate See, in 2015. Well, let's let the people hear it. In 2015, Trump in a debate said uh, talked about the connection between autism and vaccinations. And then he talked about vaccinations for measles just days ago. Here is 2015 and last week. Or not. The child, a beautiful child, went to have the vaccine and came back and a week later got a tremendous fever, got very, very sick, now is autistic. They have to get the shot. The vaccinations are so important. This is really going around now. They have to get their shot. I mean, it can't be much more direct than that. Right. He has been, he has confused the public. But I mean, he said what he needed okay, to so say. Okay, so this didn't is he? though, I'm, yes, he said what he had to say, but too late. I mean, I think I this is a little bit like how he sort of flirts around conspiracy theories, but then when he's, uh, when, 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 when faced with did he actually have that conspiracy theory, he said, no, no, no. And this is, you know, um, and, um, and so these are bad, this other group is a bad information group. And I want to take our sort of public health, like all they need is better education to be back. And and start to think of these people in the public safety regime, which is they are uh, risking communities and children um, in ways in which criminal uh, which are kin to criminal conduct. Uh, So that would include fines for parents that, um, you know, know, they need to cover the medical costs or the public health costs for what they're unleashing. It involves, you know, a a list, right? Who's not vaccinated? It it involves getting rid of all of these permissiveness um, of allowing these people to exempt themselves from vaccination, including criminal charges against doctors who are allowing them to get out of these vaccinations for, quote unquote, religious or personal reasons. There's no religious reasons to get out of vaccination. Even the Hasidic Jews are mostly impacted by this. They're their leaders are saying there's no religious exception. So I'm done, um, you know, in this issue, because 
Um, it impacts my children, your children. It is this is a community resiliency issue. Um, I'm done with this sort of well. All they need is better education. These are people who are purposefully living by voodoo science, and in the same way that uh, we would not allow a parent, not you know, a parent would have criminal liability for sending their two, second grader to school with a loaded gun and hoping for the best. Um, I think we need to view the anti-vaxxers in the same light and um, and make them pay because this is just a, this is a ridiculous. Yeah. Medical th- exemptions and nothing else. Med- There's no basis. Yeah. The medical exem- exemptions would still give you the herd immunity because it's so few amount of the population. I agree with that. It's when you get below 95, 94% that then you start to worry. And um, I have to say, I felt like like columns have different reactions. So, of course, I'm like, you know, getting killed by the anti-vaxxers and, you know, and um, and stuff online. But um, I do feel like this column like picked up on a sentiment and maybe a little bit of what you're feeling, which is just anger, just anger at this at the free rider self-centeredness you know, anti-science, pro-plague attitude by these, by these, you know, kale-eating parents. And in California, until recently, when California started to have uh, stricter laws, um, uh, there were uh, populations in South Sudan had better vaccination rates than in pockets of California. Did you read the beginning of your piece? Let me just read the first oh, two no, lines. Oh, no, it is a good, great Here's the opening to her piece in the Washington Post. Yeah. I love my children, writes Juliet Kayam, and if I'm in a gracious mood, I believe the parents who do not vaccinate their children love theirs as much as I love mine. But I'm quite confident in this fact. I love their children much more than they love mine. That sums it up yeah. perfectly. Yeah. By the way, uh, our colleagues in the control room uh, got what Barr had to say, which yeah. I would argue is about as disingenuous as yeah. it gets. Remember, Charlie Crist asked this question. Reports have emerged recently, General, meaning Attorney General, that members of the special counsel's team were frustrated at some level at the limited information included in your March 24th level that it does not adequately or accurately necessarily portray the report's findings. Do you know what they're referring with that? And he says, no, I don't. Listen to Barr's response. This is the Senator Leahy this morning. Relating to, he says that he had responded to a question related to unidentified members who were expressing frustration of the accuracy of the findings. He said, I spoke to Bob Mueller, not members of his team. So Leahy, uh, 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 Representative Chris, Congressman Chris, asked a question about the Mueller team. And his response is, I don't know what they're talking about even though he spoke right. to Mueller himself right. and his defense a month later is, oh, I thought, I didn't know they were talking about Bob Mueller. Just his they team. were talking about unified, identified members of his team, I guess, with whom I didn't speak. It is so disingenuous. Yeah. It is painful. It is painful. It is. And, um, you know, uh, Barr has a choice. Attorney generals have gone to jail before. Um, but what Barr has done um, is um, in some ways, I think just um, its clarity is actually quite helpful um, because there's no more messing around, right? I mean, in other words, the entire Department of Justice is, or the leadership is rotted um, and will defend the president at all costs. And so the Congress and the voters have an option in response to that. And that may be, that might not come till 2020. But as I said, this is just laying the runway, right? This is just you know, more and more um, information about how disingenuous Barr was about 
both the Russia side of this, but of course the obstruction of justice. You know what kind of impossible position this puts us, the American people, yeah. in? You have the Washington Post the other day saying that Donald Trump has reached the 10,000 line mark. 10,000 by the President of the United States. 61 in the Green Bay, Wisconsin speech alone the other night. Number two, Sarah Sanders admitted to the Mueller people that she lied about uh, Mm -hmm. uh, countless numbers of FBI people complaining about Comey. So you really can't trust her. The Attorney General of the United States is clearly caught in a lie under oath. Perjury. And so if you're the average person living in... And who is he blaming for this whole thing? What do you mean? The press. Oh, Oh, yeah. If you're the average person who is living in... Boston or living in Iowa or living, how do you know Hmm. what what to believe and where the truth is about anything? Well, I think, think, you know, it's surprising to me that when you have people lie to you over and over and over and over again, at what point do you stop believing them? I I think, I I mean, I think think it's taken a little bit too long for the mainstream media, at least, to do two things. One is just call it a lie. I mean, it's just all this obfuscation. I don't even know how to say the word, but you know exactly. Um, you know, you know exactly. about uh, Trump said misleading remarks. Trump, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, said this that wasn't quite accurate. I mean, just he Trump knows what he's doing. He knows it's a lie. He knows it's not misleading. He knows mothers and doctors are not cradling newborns and then killing them. I mean, uh, come on, you people. So, so but just call a lie. But the other So let's assume the press does it. And they, I think they're doing a wonderful job of it for now. the most part now. So good. We know that that statement, X or Y, is untrue. What do you do tomorrow when the president of the United States says uh, we have discovered a great risk uh, nuclear weapon development in North Korea, and as a result, we have to act. Prove what it. do you do tomorrow when the attorney? What do you? How do you? How does the average person get well, to that point? Well, that's what's so frightening about exactly. this situation. It is. It is it's, frightening. I don't mean to minimize the frightening, but it is. Uh, leadership is um, uh, is earned, um, and respectability um, is uh, you know doesn't come with title, um, and so. You know, in some ways, there is no reason to believe a word of what is happening well, right now. Also- and that's scary, but also it's like, okay, well, maybe then, maybe I have clarity. Maybe maybe this parsing we've been doing person, for three years. Who's the person? We used to talk about the generals, you know, McMaster yeah. that was there, was there and Mattis right. that was there to stop the president from his worst instincts. We also had his economic advisor, Cohn, Gary talking Cohn, about yeah. stopping the president from his own worst instincts, his White House counsel. But the, Gary Cohn was the guy who was in the Woodward book, pulled documents yes. off the president's um, desk the, the, and word. hoped that he would forget about the documents yeah, that's about a different the story and again stopping the president from carrying out his worst yeah. obstruction of justice efforts. So who's going to stop the president now? Who's the person in there that's going to stop him? No one. Well, that's that. I know, I know, but you said, but like it's like it's it's uh, you know. The Republicans, a, the Republicans no, aren't going to stop I, and him. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm calm about it because it's so the clarity is very calming. Whether you're Republican or Democrat, like, I mean, in other words, 
most of my Republican friends who voted for Trump are no longer with Trump. Now, these are Massachusetts Republicans who sort of thought right. that was all an act and the he'd be better. They're just tired. They're just tired, right? And, and, and the lying and the craziness and the manicness and the have 300 tweets this morning against Biden. You know, I got a text from, from someone um, – on the business side, who Not I work 300. with, I mean, it was close to it, however many, right? That you was that was a misleading. You can't turn into okay, that was misleading. You got a text but yeah, from but a I, what? just that that um, uh, who had voted for Trump, who just said. This is so tiresome, if anything else. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not calm about it. It makes me nervous. It's un, un, unsavory. It's not um, not who we are uh, as a country. But unfortunately, right now, it's who we are. And we have limited options to respond. But my only goal, the goal right now is create the record. Because uh, I do believe this will end. When I stop believing that this will end, then mm-hmm. then you should be worried. Well, apparently Barr's not going to show up tomorrow for the House. Oh, really? Is that voted, the latest? They voted to have uh, lawyers uh, question him, and he's not going to stand oh, for that, that just one happened? second. Okay. Yeah. Good to see you, Juliet. That Bye, was uplifting. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, come on. I'm the one. I'm clarity. It's <laughs> Read total clarity. Read her piece, Washington Post. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank National you. security expert Juliet Kayyem joins us every week. She's on the faculty at the Hen- Harvard's Kennedy School and an analyst for CNN. Uh, thank you, Juliet, very much. We're going to talk with another colleague of Juliet's, uh, David Gergen, a little bit later, advisor to four president, CNN analyst, about the uh, Mueller hearings today. Coming up, meanwhile, WGBH executive arts editor Jared Bowen gives us his take on Avenger, Endgame, and other arts and culture events around town. He's next on 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan here with us in Studio 3 to go over the latest arts and culture events in and around town is Jared Bowen. Jared is GBH's executive arts editor and host of the TV series Open Studio, which you can catch Friday nights at 8.30. In fact, you can get a Jared Bowen double feature because at 8 o'clock on Channel 2, as Jared and Marjorie were just discussing, on Friday nights it's Sing That Thing. Jared is one of the coaches. He's not a singer. Jared, it is very good to see you. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. Double feature. I love that. I, I hadn't thought it. of it that way. Yeah, exactly. So tell us first about this movie, Avengers Endgame. Well, I'm going to be very careful because I still feel like that there are people who haven't seen it yet, and I don't want to destroy it for them. Obviously, this is a hugely anticipated film. Obviously, it's a very successful film already, raking in a billion dollars over its first few hours, practically. Uh, But this is uh, really the end of... What I'm now recognizing, it's kind of the end of a generation for a lot of people who grew up with all of these films, uh, starting um, with Iron Man and and what Marvel Studios has brought us. There was a whole group of people who this was their childhood, their early adulthood, and now it's kind of come to an end of a cycle. Uh, And so Endgame picks up where the last film left off, where Thanos has has created a situation by where, whereby half the uh, half the planet, uh, half the universe actually has been wiped out. We see people turn to dust. I remember being at that screening, people just aghast, wondering how it would be resolved. Well, we figure that out here as we see a, a whole slew of Marvel characters from the past uh, 22 films 
gathered together here. Have you? What'd you think of it? Have you told us that yet or not? Uh, I, w- I talked about it briefly while you were out last week, and I was filming oh. it with Marjorie. Oh, and? and I think this is a film that really rests on tone, and for tone, it gets it right. Uh, I, I think it, it, it moves along nicely. It's three hours and one minute long. I think I only looked at my yeah. watch once because it didn't feel excessively long. Uh, you see all no of these characters. There are nods to what's come before. No intermission. I, it's funny intermission you say in a movie since like Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> well, I don't think. but three hours is a long time. It is long time. This is so funny that you say this. Because With those I was, big sodas? Right. Yeah. <laughs> There was there was a lot of coming and going. I did notice that because we know how distracted I can become in the theater. Exactly. Uh, yeah, there was. But yeah, we were, I was talking about that with Howard Powell, our videographer, oh, really? who was saying there should be an intermission. Well, you know, by the way, number one in fifty four countries, which is unbelievable to me. I looked up some of the box office things. Well, it's one point two million dollars, billion dollars in the first weekend, three hundred fifty million domestically, which is obviously huge. But this makes it even more dramatic. Put it in context. The number two film took in eight million dollars <laughs> 350 million and by the way no, the number massive. two film was captain marvel another one of these how many of the 22 have you seen would I, you say i don't know but i think i've seen most of them really? over the years and granted this is a long time I, I think only a couple i've missed so but even so there were still a lot of things that happened references there were so many easter eggs riddled throughout this film that people were laughing and gasping and i didn't necessarily always follow some of the uh, some of them one last thing when you were in the theater because i didn't hear when you and marjorie were discussing like, just tell me there were not adults dressed up as superheroes <laughs> because it's like when i go to red sox game and i see like a 45 year old wearing like a 200 dollar <laughs> you know, a jersey of the uh, shortstop. It, it it sort of puts me at least... Out. They were not, right? Not at this... Kids, screen, mostly. Not at this screening. The last one... And we have a clip from this that we can oh, play, we do. too. Oh, we do. Um, but the, la- the last screening I saw where someone was dressed up was It, and somebody dressed up <laughs> as Pennywise the Clown. That is terrifying. Stephen King. You do not want to go into a dark room with Pennywise the Clown sitting near you. So we do have a clip from uh, The Avengers. What's it called? Endgame? Is that what the deal Endgame, is? Endgame, yep. Endgame. Here's a little bit of that. God, seems like a thousand years ago. I fought my way out of that cave. Became Iron Man. Realized I loved you. I know I said no more surprises, but I was really hoping to pull off one last one. What did he say? I fought my way out of a cave and became a gay man. <laughs> what did he? What is? No, I don't think that's what. What he did he said. say? Uh, I became mean, Iron Man. Okay. Yeah, he became Iron Man, and so there are laughs, there are tears. Oh, we laughed, we th- cried. There's Thor just dressed as Jeff Bridges from as the dude from The Big Lebowski. For some reason, same sweater, same hair, and then the Hulk has upped his wardrobe, and it looks like he's been shopping a lot at Barney's oh. since we last <laughs> saw, saw him. So there's something for everyone here. So this sounds really neat, oh, this next thing. I am so thing. excited about this. Um, Aretha Franklin, Amazing Grace, this was done years ago and just kind of never saw uh, the light of like day. Like a half century uh, ago almost. Yeah. It's amazing. This is such a fascinating story, and it is a spectacular film. Uh, I cannot recommend this enough. So what happened is... Here we have a 29-year-old Aretha Franklin. She's already the queen of soul. She's a star. She wants to go back to her roots, and she wants to record an album of gospel music, which she did ultimately over the course of two nights in Los Angeles in 1972 at the New Temple Missionary 
Baptist Church. And so as she was doing this, uh, as this was coming to fruition, Warner Brothers decided that they would make a concert film. They had had success doing this with Woodstock, so they saw another opportunity here. They grabbed Sidney Pollock, who was fresh oh. off of uh, – uh, they don't shoot horses – yeah uh, – they shoot horses, don't they? And so he was ripe to do this, to make this documentary film. They shot it, as I said, over two nights for recording this album, uh, Amazing Grace, which would go on to be the best-selling gospel album of all time and one of the, the, the best-selling live recordings of all time. But then he didn't make the film right. They didn't know how to technically do it. They didn't have the clappers, so they couldn't sync it up. Of what, course, what are the clappers? The clappers are, are what helps you sync up the sound. Oh. Um, so you can sync the voice to the music. And because this was so driven by music, they just didn't have the technology to correct their mistakes in making the film. And so it languished. Until about the early 1990s, and people started to take a second look at it uh, as the technology developed, and they realized they might be able to salvage it. But for for reasons that I've read about in the New York Times, Aretha Franklin didn't want this film to be seen. Why was that? She would say publicly that she liked it, but apparently she had concerns that it was too much about celebrity, perhaps too much about her father. It wasn't enough about the spiritual side of this and the music. Of course, we'll flash forward even further, now that she's gone, her niece, who's the executor of her her state has allowed for this to go forward and so we're finally seeing this film Amazing Grace which is a, a concert film of course we have the technology so everything is synced up perfectly uh, and so it it, it it takes you completely into that night and into this room uh, where they have uh, the Southern LA community uh, Southern LA community choir who's gathered behind Aretha Franklin she's in this white caftan it, you, you get the sense that it's really hot in that room because she's just dripping with sweat as a lot of the songs she's singing, her eyes are just so tightly closed. I saw this at the Coolidge Corner Theater on Friday night. Giant screen. It's one of the few times in my life where I forgot that I was in a theater. Oh, I great. felt like I was in this room. And you're so pulled into the music because, of course, she's such an exquisite talent in that voice. But to see how rapt the audience is, to see the places that she must just disappear to as she's singing this music is incredible. Well, Here it is. I, Can we play a little sound yeah, from let's it? Play a little sound. Here's, I have a here question. she is singing at an LA church in 72, and the song, well, you'll know, the song she's singing is Amazing Grace. We'll play a little piece of it. Ah, Amazing. Just 30 seconds of the film. By the way, it took, so, it took her 12 seconds to sing the word amazing. It was so incredible. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't I read where she was very young and began singing in her local church and just 
blew the congregation away. I mean, wasn't that part of her story, I think? It really, and she spent her, so much of her life in the church because of her father, C.L. Franklin, the Reverend, and who, and I mentioned earlier, she had some concerns that he was part of, too, maybe perhaps too much part of the film because he does get up and speak at one point. But yes, she was steeped in this. This is this is practically in her DNA. So she was so, um, you know, joyous in returning to it. And and as you heard from that clip, there is such a sense of community. And also, this film, you, you catch glimpses of how they're trying to put it together. You see Sidney Pollack running around. You see Mick Jagger, who is in town. Also on the label, decided he heard about this. So the second night is much more packed because word got out that Aretha Franklin was here. She was recording this album. And so you see Mick Jagger kind of wandering around and he is just wide eyed looking at this talent. It, I, it's such a great experience. You know, in anticipation of you coming in, because I didn't know much about the film, we pulled the Wesley Morris, the great winning Pulitzer Prize, about 11 years old when he was with the Boston Globe, obviously with the New York Times. Just listen to the first paragraph of it. Another take on this, obviously, the same movie. For all kinds of terrible reasons, the movies that don't have that many great shots of black women, they just don't. But there's a shot of Aretha Franklin in Amazing Grace that might be the greatest image of a black woman that I've ever seen in an American movie. It's just a medium close-up, straight on, of her at the podium of the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Watts, almost evenly framed between two microphones and a pair of afros that complement hers. The camera doesn't move, and neither does she, except to sing, and even then, she's moving you. Yes. I mean, does that capture a feeling in one paragraph so beautifully? You should flip. Did you read the last line? I read the whole thing, read the Because it's very short. Just read the last line of his review. Uh, the last line. You mean literally the last line? Yeah. Why don't you take it? If so you want. I got it right here. The woman practically eulogizes. Well, you get both the most lovely gaze a professional camera has ever laid upon Aretha Franklin and some of the mightiest singing she's ever laid on you. The woman practically eulogizes herself. What a line. Don't bother with tissues. Bring a towel. That is great. Isn't that? And it's that just so really true. Great. Absolutely true. It, I cannot wait to see this. I just I can't wait to and, see and it. Really Amazing try, grace. Try to see it at a, at a really big screen uh, so that you can feel like you're there. Okay, let's go from uh, movies to uh, plays. You want to start with Viet Gone? Uh, we'll start with <laughs> Viet Gone. This is a really fun piece, actually. It's presented by Company One Theater at the Boston Center for the Arts through May 25th. And this is a piece by Kui Gwyn, uh, who is writing about his family and arriving here in 1975 from Vietnam. Uh, as immigrants, they go to a camp that's been set up in Arkansas. And so it's part... Uh, part sexual encounters, it's part road trip, it's part ninja fighting. So he really takes a story um, of his family but puts it through his lens. And he is uh, a playwright and now screenwriter working. He has written for Marvel. He's now with Walt Disney Animated Studios. He founded a theater company that he described or was, was described as Geek Theater. Uh, one of his previous shows is She Loves Monsters that has to do with gaming and monsters and, and just kind of his, what he would describe as his nerdy sensibility. And he applies that humor here. Um, so we have these characters uh, moving along, assimilating. And, you know, it turns quickly, I think we're so used to seeing so many stories of immigrants and refugees today that are that are solid dramas that this doesn't give us that. And this is at the urging of his parents who said, you know, you're outrageous, you're funny, you should write more work like that. So he has. So um, I think that there's a lot of skipping around in this piece, which can make it uh, careen a little bit, make it a little uneven. However, because it's so funny um, and uh, kind of deliciously pointed, uh, it becomes a very different piece. And Where it's is this enjoyable. Did you this say is at the uh, BCA, the oh. Plaza Theater at the BCA. 
Through May 25th, I just read, yeah. Okay, tell us about A Black Odyssey. Well, I just saw this last night. It just opened at Central Square Theater, and it's presented by Underground Railway Theater and the Front Porch Arts Collective. Uh, and uh, it's, as I said, it just opened, and so it's playing for several weeks. And this is basically uh, a, the tale of... Uh, the Odyssey, Homer's The Odyssey, as put through the prism of the African-American experience. Um, So we have a writer in Marcus Gardley who has created Ulysses Lincoln, who is a veteran of the war in Afghanistan, and he's dropped into the water and he's the gods overhead are kind of playing with his life their forces playing with his life as we come to understand they have done throughout american history uh and ultimately aunt tina athena is dispatched to look out for her last nephew her last charge because she's lost others to shootings and to as she says ropes and trees so she's on lookout to make sure that he's going to even though he's adrift in the waters, he's going to ultimately make it back to his wife and son. This is a sprawling piece. It's three hours long, but it really works because it takes so much of the black experience and fits it into this form of the Odyssey. And it works because you see that the trials and tribulations and what it takes for him to be connected to his family once again, but for all the obstacles that he has to encounter to get back there, it it's at once uplifting, but also very difficult, I would say. So you went last night, you chose to go last night to see one interpretation Three of hours. the Odyssey, Black Odyssey. Intermission there. Marjorie and I went yes. to another interpretation of the Odyssey last night that, of course, was the Clintons oh. at the Boston oh. Opera House. So in retrospect, who do you think did better? I, I think, can. I think I did better. I think you did. Exactly. I, I didn't really. I forgot that you guys were going. How you've probably talked about this. On no, the actually, already. we're going to bring it up with David Gergen, who's going to join us in a few minutes because obviously he knows. It was. Uh, could you describe the experience? Well, uh, I was a little disappointed. I, I must say, it. It. I hoped that they would be a little bit more forward-looking and not so backward-looking. I, I wrote a column about this for the Globe. It should be posted online any minute now. Oh, great. I. I. I what do you think? Uh, I thought that uh, I was amazed that in 2019, considering uh, what happened in 2016 and what we have uh, in the Me Too era, what I thought a lot of people were feeling about Bill Clinton, it was much more full than I thought it would be. Maybe 90% of the audience and the seats were taken. I think the, the most expensive seats were not, but much, and, much the rest of the and, was. And two things. One, 99% of the people there we're so excited to be there. It was amazing. And I got a, I meant to tell you this morning. I got an incredible email this morning from someone who I thought characterized the per- virtually everything they said got applause. It didn't matter what it was. Yeah. Got huge applause. And the person who emailed me, I thought wrote this beautifully. I wish I could find the email now. Said the applause was almost an angry applause. Meaning it was like we want to stamp out whatever horrible thing that has happened that was done to Hillary Clinton or, or yeah. the, in any case, it was an odd moment. And, you know, the, the weirdest part, I should say, and Marjorie and I were talking about this, too, is we started the day with sort of a piece of Pete the future Buttigieg. of yeah. American politics. Pete right, Buttigieg spent right. a half hour with us at the uh, library. It was fabulous. And we ended the day with the past. And uh, it, it, that juxtaposition made it even more odd. And you sort of I, I left at least saying their time has come and gone, but obviously there were a lot of people who felt otherwise. Well, this was the question that I had about this, is why were they 
here? I mean, I know why Great they were question. here. That was did, our question. That was our question. But did they try to create any sort of arc through this? No. Nope. To whatever they did on stage. With nope. the exception, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but with the, we're going to, I'm going to, we, Marjorie and I did a little uh, a package that we're going to play tonight on uh, Greater Boston at the end of the show. But with the exception of the opening question from a guy who I never heard of before who played the president on Scandal, Scandal yeah. uh, uh, who was a friend of theirs, apparently, with the exception of the opening question, which spoke to the uh, Mueller's letter to uh, Barr that was obviously just disclosed by the Washington Post and the New York Times yesterday, minutes before they took the stage, there was zero about current events. It was all wow. self-congratulations about things they'd done in the past. The final question was about guns, but it was a for, sort of predictable kind of answer. We have to take the Senate if we're ever going to get anything done on guns. I mean, yeah. hello. We, so it, it, in that regard, it was it was. You know what strange. I was disappointed by? I thought, and I wrote this in my piece, I don't think she's running anymore. I think they're done running. So you, I want a little bit of of authenticity, right? You know, I want to maybe her to her look to look back at uh, the, the campaign. I certainly thought with these two people that have been so successful in politics, a little advice to the Democrats: What do you do going forward? And there was none of that. Well, how, well, how is it? I, I'm more interested fine, in talking fine, about this one <laughs> because it's so fascinating to me. How was it done? Was there was there a moderator? Or on a Tony, stage. whatever his yep. name is, Tony Goldwin. Goldwin. Thank you. Yeah, he uh, moderated. He was the moderator. He asked them uh, endless questions, even longer than mine, which really takes (laughs) a lot of doing, I should say. And some of their answers, I time one of Bill Clinton's answers was, I think, twelve minutes long. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, again, unless you went for a dose of Clintons and it didn't matter what they said or how they said it, which was the perspective of many people I interviewed. I think it's uh, yeah, yeah. Marjorie interviewed a ton of people in line before. You'll hear some of those interviews tonight. In fact. Who are the favorite two who are probably listening to the show because they're big fans of the radio show? What did they bring with them to the uh, thing? Hillary Clinton action figures. <laughs> she's in a little, she's in a little blue pantsuit. That's <laughs> true. They were each covered. So uh, sadly, because we uh, digressed. Uh, uh, and no questions from the audience? That was my no, last no, question. No, no, no. Are you kidding me? No. I don't wow. think so. Wow. We, you, uh, is there either of these museums we're going to touch? Is the exhibit about to close imminently? And if uh, not, we'll save it till next week. Yeah, we can wait. We can hold it. Okay, yeah, they, fair enough. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, Jared Thank you very much. I'm sorry about Good that digression. It was Jim's fault. No, WGBH. I'm, I'm, I'm so interested in it. Um, executive arts editor and host of the TV series Open Studio, which you can catch Friday nights at 8.30 on WGBH Channel 2. And at 8 o'clock, you can catch Sing That Thing. What's going to be on this week on Sing That Thing? Uh, more acapella more groups? We have <laughs> more acapella groups okay. as we work into the competition. Can I quickly tell you about oh, sure. uh, Open, Open Studio? Studio absolutely. We have uh, the legendary playwright Paula Vogel, who will be talking oh, about oh. Her, her new play, Indecent, which is her new play about an old play that landed its creators uh, on trial for obscenity in the 1920s because it featured the first lesbian kiss, among other issues they had with the depiction of Jews at a very hateful time in America in the 20s. And then we'll talk about Stephen Sondheim. Oh, terrific. That's going to be great. Thank you very much, Stephen Sondheim hosted a fundraiser, did he not, for Buttigieg in New York City? I was I just reading that. Yes, he yes, did. Yes. Yeah. Good up, to see you, Jared. We're watching you. Friday night. Up next, former presidential advisor and founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard University, David Gergen, is here. We're going to talk to him about sacred music. That's right. We're going to talk to him about some other things, too. And we'll have to sneak in a question, of course, about Robert Mueller. That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browder. She's Marjorie Egan. David Gergen, as you probably know, has worked for a bunch of U.S. presidents, starting as a staff assistant, speechwriting officer Richard Nixon, ending as a counselor to President Bill Clinton. Along the way, he was the director of communications for President Ford and an advisor to George H.W. Bush during his 80 presidential campaign. He's also the founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School, senior political analyst for CNN. All of this might rival his latest accomplishment, the Handel and Haydn Society is honoring David at the Society Ball Gala this Saturday for the support he and his wife have given the Handel and Haydn Society for more than 20 years. David joins us to talk about his passion for the arts. But first, we need to indulge our passion. For, well, maybe second, we'll indulge our passion for politics. Yeah, we'll get to that we'll second. We'll get to that. Congratulations <laughs> on this, by the way. It's so weird. It's like an out-of-body. When you know a person in one way, and then all of a sudden you find about another obsession of theirs, it changes everything. Well, Jim, listen, this is a case of mistaken identity. <laughs> <laughs> it was my wife, they thought, who ought to be properly honored because she knows something about music and she thinks I'm almost educable on the <laughs> subject, but, but it's, it's always been a question. We recall it was some fondness. going to, Early in our marriage, we were in San Francisco and uh, I was just started the Navy and we went to a Mahler concert and I came out and said, I think I can whistle to that. And she thought, <laughs> she put me down ever since then. So she's a great lover. My, my wife, Anne, is a great lover of uh, opera as well as classical music. She's a, uh, she's a big, um, F, you know, she's a groupie uh, for, the, for the ring cycle, Wagner's ring cycle. And she goes nuts over the singer Jonas Kaufman. Oh. Uh, I have no place in our family until... Thomas Kaufman has been heard from. We've heard Kaufman with Christina Opelias. Yes, at the we So have. talk about otherworldly twosome. But, you know, don't minimize your contribution. By the way, the Handel and Haydn people from time to time rehearse about hall. 15 feet from us in the beautiful Fraser studio. Yeah. What is the genesis? What's your, wh- where does the connection come from? Our connection? Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, we lived in Washington for a long, long time, and then I moved here to, we moved here to be uh, when I joined the faculty at the Kennedy School, that was about 20 years ago. And uh, one of our first Christmases here, our two kids uh, came to visit us with their families, and, and we, were, we were looking for a place to take them. And uh, we saw that um, Hamlet Haydn was doing a, a French Christmas music program. Uh, and so we took our kids there, and uh, Christopher Hogwood was conducting at that time. Uh, and we were very, we became very, very engaged. And over time, we've um, drawn closer. And we've had my my wife's last two big birthdays. Uh, we've had an ensemble from Handel and Haydn come to our home. Oh, oh form. It's really, it's really been a surprise. And and this last time around, uh, we went to the home of our our daughter, Catherine, who's here at the Boston Medical Center as a doctor there, family medicine doctor. And um, we have a 10-year-old grandchild, granddaughter, and she, she's just taken up the violin, and so she played with them, <laughs> which, as you can imagine, was a wonderful experience for her. And At 10 inspired. years old? Well, That's she, impressive. You know, I, I don't want to make too much of it, but she has gotten – she's uh, – Amira is her name, and she's doing very well now on the piano. But it, but it was inspiring for these music, musicians to come in. And 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 sit, you know they got down on their hands and knees basically and worked with her on our music and it was it was a wonderful moment. So we've had lots of um, 
we've had lots of times where despite my uh, lack of education in this field, uh, it's been a, uh, it's, we've had some really good times with Hamlin Hyde, and so I'm very proud to be uh, engaged with the, um, this, this weekend's gala. Well, congratulations to you, your wife, and them. just before we leave, the reason I'm so glad we're talking to you about this is not only because Marjorie and I are both very fond of you and your work, Huh. Is we have Andres Nelson's in tomorrow morning, and obviously people talk BSO, BSO, yeah. and BSO is ex- otherworldly great. There's so many great, great, great orchestras and, in this community, and it's so great when others. You know, you, you don't have to go to Symphony Hall. We hope you do. And we hope you go other places. Handel and Haydn is just one of so many terrific things that are available to people who. Love that kind of music. I I, I agree, and I, I I you know one of the things the distinctions for Handel and Haydn, of course, is it was created way back in 1815, so that it has mm. now become the longest continuously performing musical ensemble in the country. Oh, I didn't know that. Neither you know, did I. Yeah, and it's and when it was first when it was first created, there were other uh, cities and, and communities that saw it and said, "Well, let's do this here." And so the one started, uh, Handel and Haydn started up in New York, one in Brooklyn, one in Newark, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, and San Francisco. Uh, there were six others. All six of those others have disappeared. They've all faded. But the one in Boston has thrived, That's uh, which is terrific. But, I, you know, I, I do want to, if uh, before we get too far away, I know, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm worried you want to move into politics too quickly. We do. <laughs> but <laughs> but I wanna, There's a lot going I, on, I, Dan One of the things I enjoy, <laughs> what I enjoy about Hamilton Heiden and about Boston in general uh, is this is such a rollicking city, too. <laughs> I, I mean, let me just read you from the early days, very, very briefly. Back in the early days of Hamilton Heiden, starting in the 1820s into the 1850s, uh, this was uh, written by a, a participant, one of the uh, members of the orchestra, quote, decanters of ardent spirits that were habitually provided for the use of the male singers uh, in one of the hall's anterooms, one of the great features of, of the society. Quote, he said, nothing impressed me more than seeing members leave their seats in the old Boylston Hall, retire down the little narrow and steep stairs on either side of the organ to refresh the inner man. The process was called tuning. Tuning. <laughs> <laughs> and the members, while engaged in a laborious effort to master Handel's difficult choruses, found it necessary to tune quite often during a rehearsal. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> that is great. Sounds like Boston politics. That is <laughs> great. That is excellent. So, David Gergen, we actually yeah. talked about you last night. Margie and I and some of our coworkers from my television show went to see the Clintons. As we're walking in, we say to each other, what's the point of this tour, I think it's a 13-city tour that ends up in L.A., and after 90 minutes of the Clintons, we had the same question. Hmm. I don't know if you've seen it, but whether you've seen it or not, what is the point of this roadshow, do you think, from by Bill and Hillary Clinton? I, I, the honest answer is I don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm not privy to it. I've wondered the same question. Um, I, I think they, uh, they would feel with... I don't know if they feel this way or not, but I sense among their friends, and I'm, I count myself as one of the friends, um, uh, there's a feeling that, uh, yes, she lost. But two of them have, in this new age, I think lost some of their luster, and they're not as powerful within the Democratic Party, for example. I, I think they will not be asked to, to campaign in some parts of the country. Uh, and I think they did. I think they were a much better political leadership couple than they're now being given credit for. I think perhaps in some ways they got more credit than they deserved at one point along the way, but I think they're getting less credit than they deserve now. So a little bit of personal rehab for lack I think, of a well, lack I, I classic think, expression. Yes. 
I, I don't know. It, it, it strikes me that they themselves may be a little disappointed about sort of, you know, how this is going. Um, because I do think they continue to have a voice uh, that matters. I do think that they have, you know, um, you know, frankly, there are times when we dismiss uh, the, the older generation too quickly. And we always, you know, go for the young. And there's wisdom. And, and some of these folks, you know, when we lost Dick Luger this last weekend, mm-hmm. we all mourned him because he was one of the people who was a real statesman. And I think the Clintons both have continuing insights and have some things to contribute. They are much more highly regarded overseas uh, than they are here at the moment. They continue to have a, a considerable influence and sway. Um, but it's, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked about it. I've, I've had some concern about it. I, you know, some of us worry a little bit about his health. We're never quite sure about it. Um, but I, I think he was a much better president, and he's been, you know, he, this, the, the Me Too movement, which has been entirely justified as a movement, and I have great respect for it, but I think it has been pretty harsh on him, and I think that the, the, there has been that clash. We're talking well, to David Gergen. Th- because he has not acknowledged uh, Perhaps. Yeah, uh, yeah. any kind of culpability. I think it's a problem for Well, you him. know, I... I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I totally agree with that. I, but I also agree. I, what I would also argue is that, that that Hillary, if whatever else you may say about her, has been at the forefront in fighting for women's rights and women's advancement all the way going back to be, the Beijing yep. conference in 1995. Yep, that's true. You know, I've always thought if she were, if she had won, one of the most important initiatives she would would have brought to the presidency was to uh, a campaign to empower women across the globe. You know, she was doing important work in that field. So I, I do think that there's some you know, there's some balancing factors yeah. here. Has he? Uh, was, was, did Bill have a bad boy side? Yes, he did. Yeah, uh, you know, there was a Saturday night Bill and there was a Sunday morning Bill, and and we all knew that. You don't think Ivanka Trump has picked up the mantle of doing wonderful things for women across the globe, David Gergen? <laughs> I think that's. <laughs> I won't answer. go down that track. <laughs> okay. So, David Gergen, we're watching. Uh, we all read about this uh, Mueller uh, letter to uh, Attorney General Barr last night in the Washington Post and the yes. New York Times. We all saw at least the first portion of Attorney General Barr's testimony this morning, including responding to a question from Patrick Leahy from Vermont about whether or not, and he didn't put it quite this crassly whether or not he lied in his House testimony when he was asked about whether or not he had a sense of what Mueller was, uh, what Mueller's concerns were uh, to uh, Charlie Chris from Florida. And he said, I uh, did not. And I did not lie. I did not. I didn't know anything. Uh, of, can we play that one more time, actually, if you don't? This is Charlie Chris. This is actually a pretty important moment. This is in early, uh, uh, this is in early April, I believe. Is that not correct? You mean April this is 9th. the earlier testimony? This yeah. is his earlier testimony. This is about a week and a half after the Mueller letter okay. went to bar and after uh, they had a 15-minute conversation. Right. Here's Chris and then uh, Attorney General yeah. Barr. Reports have emerged recently. Uh, General, that members of the special counsel's team are frustrated at some level with the limited information included in your March 24th letter uh, that it does not adequately or accurately necessarily portray the report's findings. Do you know what they're referencing with that? No, I don't. I think I think uh, I suspect that they probably wanted, you know, more put out. And his defense to Senator Leahy today, David Gergen, is, well, they were asking me about unidentified members of Mueller's team, not not Mueller. So I didn't understand the the question. I mean, it seems to me. That's precious. 
it's it, uh, it, at least and precious in a good day and perjury on a bad day. And the thing that Marjorie and I talked about briefly is it shakes nothing. Every Republican is on his side. Every Democrat on the other side. Is there something that's going to break this logjam on Trump, on Barr, on Mueller, or is this the way we're just going to enter 2020? That's a very good question. Listen, I, I didn't listen to the uh, the testimony today. I was doing other things, um, but generally speaking, I, I think that uh, Bob Barr has, has emerged from this as a very different kind of as a very different individual from the one who went through the te- early testimony when he got the job and was confirmed by the Senate. Uh, he then made it very clear that he was going to be independent from from the White House, uh, that he played straight, um, that people could trust him. And I think increasingly, especially in light of the, the Mueller uh, letter letters, uh, it, it, people have concluded uh, that he's not playing it straight, that he slanted the story, that he shaped the public reaction in a way to help the president. And I think that's very objectionable. What I think one point he does have is that he offered Mueller a chance to review this, and uh, he didn't. And I don't understand why, having not having turned down the offer, why he then came in and made this, this sort of sent this letter. You know, one of the things I said earlier when we were talking about this is Robert Mueller kind of, to me, a little bit beats around the bush. You know, he talked about in this letter that the summary letter the department sent to Congress did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of this office's work. This is, there is now public confusion about critical critical aspects of the results of our investigation. I wish he'd be definitive. What What critical aspects. What are you yes. talking about? What did, how did you misrepresent these things? Because it's so fuzzy. I agree with that. And Same thing he did with the, when he wrote to, was it BuzzFeed, about the yes. uh, Michael, allegedly, the, and, it, that it was, quote, not accurate that Mueller had concluded that the president directed Michael Cohen to lie and to I don't, Congress. And, and I think one of the problems is we all talked about Mueller as, and by reputation, a wonderful man, a Vietnam War hero, a straight shooter. We all heard the anecdotes about how he only wore white shirts because you weren't didn't have any colored shirts on if you were uh, over there at the FBI and stuff. But this, he, there's a little, um, I don't know, naivete is the wrong word, but just not getting the politics of the moment. Uh, that may be, although he was, you know, he was walking through a minefield um, yeah. through the whole, the whole time. I, th- I think his uh, look. I, th- I thought his justification for not um, deciding on the obstruction case uh, had merit to it. If you, you can't if you, if you say, you know, if you say he obstructed, but then there's no trial, there's no way for him to sort of prove the the opposite the opposite point. That's unfair to Trump. Uh, and uh, you know, so I thought that that was reasonable. I think I thought it was Barr who then took it around the ball farther than he should have in ways that he I think were not appropriate, and allowed the president to be able to claim falsely that he'd been totally exonerated on you know every count. Um, and uh, I, I, in that sense, I I find more about Mueller to defend than than to to, to criticize. This latest episode is weird to me. And why wouldn't he, if, if, if he thought it was urgent, he would have, it seems to me he would wait in quickly and, and if necessary, gone public to deal with it. So, you know, when you talk about Barr, one of the things, Marjorie on the air had great hopes early on for Barr, that a man at the end I of agree. his career and yes, a that, man. I, that was exactly my view. Yeah, and, and obviously. I think I heard you say it on CNN. So that's so probably. I immediately <laughs> copied it. You're too and, but, you know, you've been close obviously, to the greatest power in this country. 
is the intoxication such that men and what we, we read stories in the Washington Post, New York Times, some of these people can't get jobs mm. uh, that have been tainted, mm-hmm. that had stellar yep. reputation, semi-stellar reputation, yep. stellar reputations, work for Trump, can't get a job. Most of these people are really smart people. Most of these people have had credible, if not better than credible careers. Is the power, the seductive nature of being close to the most powerful in the world of man and in the, in the world such that it causes people to act in ways that they would never think of acting otherwise? You know? I think that I, I've sometimes seen that happen with the young. Um, and they sort of think this is the way the, the game is played. Just now I was there during the, I, I came in to the Nixon administration in the midst of, uh, you know, the first term. Uh, and we had Watergate, and I saw a number of young people go to jail for things that they, I don't think they fully appreciated, that when you're asked to, to, to jump and you just jump without realizing mm-hmm. that you're breaking the law. I think they, they, they were sometimes drawn in by their elders and put in awkward situations. In, the, in this case, um, look, I think if you go in for Donald Trump, work for Donald Trump, you know what you're getting into, and you have to accept responsibility for that. And I don't know why. Um, I, I do think there's such a thing as trying to help a president who wants to be helped. It's quite different to go in and just fill a position that the president wants to be able to say, I've got you there, but I'm going to make all the decisions, and you, we really don't give much of a damn about what you think. That seems to me – I don't see anything very patriotic about that. It seems to me it's more about you know, um, uh, resume uh, building or, or you, know, you think that maybe you'll go on in some industry that you're going to go up, up in. I, I, and I, I do think – I think it's most unfortunate, Jim, that, that people of real quality now are turning down jobs. And I think that uh, – and, and, and if there is a second term and there's you know, there bigger chance of that than many realize – uh, if there is a second term, I just don't know whether he can put together a government that's, that's going to be a, a high quality. You've, when you've you argued that gra- before. Sorry, you've, you've said that uh, before as well, that there is a bigger chance of the second term. Why do you think that? Well, I think it um, at the moment uh, he's, you know, in the polls against Biden, he's running behind. He opened, The first poll that came out had him down about eight points. But I think if you look at the dynamics of how how tough the Republicans are in campaigns, how rough they are, and how they have very little regard for, you know, uh, playing by in, in any kind of by the rules. And we're already in a situation where we think the Russians may be deeply implicated in this election. I think it's going to be a th- I think they're going to be tough to beat. Um, and our and our we, you know, the Electoral College, you know, has there's a built in advantage in many ways for the Republicans. We'll have to wait and see. I, if I, I must tell you, I think Biden's had a stronger week than, than I anticipated and he looked better. And if he continues on this streak, I think he will be harder to beat yeah. than, than first look. But um, the GOP is also actively suppressing uh, votes all around the country in different states. After uh, the, sup- the vote suppression is just awful. Yeah, it, uh, and it is. And, and we in the press, frankly, or those of us who have the opportunity to speak out, you know, need to need to focus on this much more than we do because it's so decentralized. It's in state yeah. by state. It's a little bit like uh, restricting abortion rights in state by state. It's hard to get the yeah. pic- full picture at the national level. Uh, but this is a you know the, the, this is a serious serious issue about voter suppression. There is all sorts of taints of Jim Crow like laws being you know been, being introduced against minorities. We're talking to David Gergen. As Jim said when he introduced you, David Gergen, you have worked for five presidents. You mentioned you started with Nixon in the first administration. Some people, and I, I have had a lot of trouble with this president before he got to be president, now that he is president for a whole bunch of reasons. But I, I must say, I 
I am really surprised um, that the Republicans have just kind of laid down and got trampled over. And it makes me wonder if they You mean they the will... Republicans on, in the Congress vis-a-vis the Trump administration, yes. the Trump White House? and it makes me wonder whether they will ever do what we all saw during Watergate when you did have Republicans toward the end go into yes. uh, Nixon's no. office. No. Or is this just going to be the Republicans playing hardball and... I think who, who, I think the Republicans are going to play hardball through this election cycle, um, and they've they've sort of staked themselves out on that. I do think the Republican Party is in some danger of becoming a, a, a long-term minority party. I think that the if you look at the groups that are growing on our side, society as voters, whether it's women or or people of color, or or the young, the millennials, uh, all three of those are turning against the Republican Party, uh, and they're going to they may get through now, but they may pay a hugely fierce price. Uh, I, I don't think it's beyond imagination that you'll see a new party emerge uh, if this goes on into a second term, uh, a more moderate, centrist effort to see if you can pull together some Republicans like the Dick Lugers of the country uh, and, and perhaps some Democrats. I'm seeing some of that already with veterans, new veterans who are getting elected to Congress. I've been involved in that effort to elect young veterans on both sides of the aisle. And they have they put country first much more than uh, others in their generation in some cases. Um, uh, and so I, 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 I think if the, the way we're going to see this play out, you know, I, and in the short term I'm pretty pessimistic, but in the long term I'm a lot more hopeful. So, David, before you go, when we watch you on CNN, we're CNN obsessed, as I think most of our listeners know. You're always calm. And we we are not that calm here. So is it <laughs> Handel and Haydn? What is it that produces that Gergen esque calm? What, what what does it? I guess I'm just I don't know what what is Sleepy Joe? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the um, uh, well, it you know helps after you've seen a lot. <laughs> it, uh, it because um, not every time we uh, you know get very hyper about something is it is it that important to the long term? You have to. Uh, I. I I, again, I think you know if you look at the history of our democracy, we usually get it right over the long term. You only only one say we failed, and that was of course in the eighteen fifties, um, and we've come close on a couple of other occasions. But I continue to have um, uh, down at the bottom. I, I, I see signs already of, of revitalization. People who are fighting back. I think the the way women are coming into our politics is extremely encouraging, uh, and I do think that women may well change. Uh, the course of politics. And, you know, you look at women models like the Prime Minister of New Zealand now. She's fabulous. She's fabulous. And I'm not sure a man would have achieved the same thing. So, um, and I think some of the young people who are coming up who believe in service. I was just with a young man this week who was um, he was in the Marines, but after he came out of that, he wanted to teach for America. And then he he's now running, going to be running for Congress uh, as a Democrat in Minnesota. His name is Dan Fian, a former student here at the Kennedy School. Um, and I see more Dan Fians elsewhere. Well, we spoke to another uh, veteran and Kennedy School kid yesterday. Uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg spent a half hour with us at the uh-huh. Boston Public Library. Give yeah. us your quick take on uh, the uh, South Bend mayor. Well, I think he's the most articulate person in the race, uh, with the possible exception of Elizabeth Warren. Um, she's uh, she's more on top of issues than anybody in the mm-hmm. race by, by some distance, and good for her. Um, and, and Pete Buttigieg uh, has come to the Kennedy School a couple times. He was a Harvard graduate. 
uh, and I've been with him, and I've, I've been impressed by how well he can put two or three sentences together, which doesn't happen <laughs> these days <laughs> with as much regularity as you like. He's thoughtful. Um, uh, I think that he's had a, a, a range of experiences uh, that have helped to instruct his values. He hasn't had much executive experience. Uh, you know, running a town of 100,000 is not exactly the pre- preparation you look for to run a country. Being a U.S. senator isn't a lot of preparation yeah, well, with executive true. experience that's true. either. Um, and the, the question, but the big question I have is he's very attractive. The big question I have is, is he tough enough? Yeah. Is he going to get into the ring with Donald Trump who is going to go for knockout blows? Just from the beginning, the Republicans are going to do everything they can. You can hear the anti-gay stuff. You can just hear that drum beat out there in the distance. Um, and I, I don't know the answer to that question. I think this campaign will tell us this. He, I, I could see a ticket, for example, with uh, Kamala Harris and people. And, really? And people did. Yeah, I think that would be an interesting ticket. What I think is hard to put together, Jim, is it, given where we are now, I'm not sure the Democrats can afford to put up two white guys on the ticket. I think they're going to need more diversity than that. Uh, in order to mobilize yeah. their base, even though listening. one is quite – I mean, Pete is quite different. With the, 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 you know, his courage on, on the gay front, I think, is very admirable. David, congratulations. Enjoy Saturday Listen, night. Listen, I, I just I, – I hope all of Boston can take pride in, in, in Handel and Hyden. It's a wonderful uh, institution. And at a time when our, you know, the people studying the liberal arts is going down so significantly. We're listening to them right now, and it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, Good luck Saturday. Fun. Enjoy it. Okay. Take Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks so much. Here. David Gergen is the founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard Ken- Harvard Kennedy School and senior political analyst for CNN. The Handel and Haydn Society is honoring David Gergen at the Society Ball Gala this Saturday night. To learn more about it, go to handelandhaydn.org. David Gergen, thank you very much for coming in. And coming up, it's time for our concert roundtable, a break from politics, a preview of some of the best music events around town. Brian McCreef, Brian O'Donovan, and Rob Hoshield are next. This is 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy, and she is uh, Marjorie Egan. It's time for our concert roundtable, thank goodness. A preview of upcoming performances and a range of genres. I love saying that. We're joined by Rob Hoshield. He's an associate professor of liberal arts at Berkeley College of Music. Brian O'Donovan is the host. I'm not laughing at Rob. I'm laughing at something else. But I could be laughing at Rob. <laughs> Brian okay, O'Donovan, Jim. the host of GBH's The Celtic Sojourn and WCRB's Brian McCreeth. Brian is also the producer of CRB's Boston Symphony Orchestra broadcast, executive producer of CRB in Concert, and host of an interview podcast from CRB called The Answered Question. Brian, Rob, and Brian, it's great to see you yet again. We're here. We're glad to be here. Hello. 
year. I know. I know. I need a little break. I, I mean, I, this, I can't take it. <laughs> she really can't. <laughs> she, by the way, you guys don't get to hear this as home. When David Gergen is done, and we're obviously moving to the next segment, Margie won't let him go. She says, <laughs> "She says, but there could be six more years. Are you still hopeful, even if there's six more? I mean, it's like begging him to give her a little solace. Well, the... you know, I mean, a lot of people think that we're in for another six years of President By the Trump. way, Marjorie, he forgot his milk. <laughs> I, I was Thank wondering you. what that's that milk was no, doing. That's, that's mine for, oh, our, that's for, our, for our cereal eating earlier in the morning. Oh, perfect. Yes. Okay, in any case, why don't we start and make us happy? Uh, Brian O'Donovan, do you want Am to start I starting? Things? I am starting with something really, really happy, actually. This is a group called Della May, and uh, Della May uh, is a Boston Base group. Someone's Essentially, it was telephone? a Boston-based group. It uh, was a Boston-based group that caused me to set my timer Brian. off. Yeah, <laughs> and they uh, have since moved into Nashville and various other places. They're regarded as one of the finest bluegrass Americana bands that you can possibly uh, get anywhere. And they perform for us at our Boston Summer Arts Festival with Del McCory, some of the other greats in bluegrass music. Um, but they're coming back to the Sinclair in Boston on May 4th, this Saturday, in fact. I'm going to see them there. And uh, take a listen to the sound they create, kind of like a combination of the Andrews sisters uh, meeting Emmy Lou Harris. <laughs> That's quite an image. They're really yeah. doing yeah. Just take a listen, you'll agree with me. Little Bob Wills thrown in there. That was actually a perfect description. Isn't this just what we needed after David Morgan? It's a white house shuffle. Why don't you swing it on back, make another old fashion, stir it up right for all that dancing, baby, won't you whirl me around? I just challenge anybody not to move around to this. Yeah, like fingers. great. They are really fabulous. Fantastic. But they don't always have that kind of uh, multi-part harmony going, do they? Or is that always the They way don't. In fact, in, in fact, interesting you should point that out, Rob. Rob is very knowledgeable in this music as well. Molly Tuttle, who I actually yeah. talked about last, uh, last time I was on here, joined in with them in this, so they've got oh, that man. close harmony. And they're doing more of that these days around that single mic. Yeah. It's just a great look, and it's a really, really happy sound that Delamay creates. I believe there might be some tickets available, but really the Where Sinclair... Sinclair in Harvard Square is going to be rocking out with yeah. that sound on yeah. Saturday night. That's great. That's Rob Hoshield, take it away. All right. Well, Scullers is going to be rocking out with the sound of Melissa Aldana on May 16th. She is a tenor saxophonist from Chile, 30 years old, really talented, graduated from Berkeley in 2009. <clears throat> Excuse me. And she... Um, Whoa, there's Brian. So I'm not having, I'm not having, only is Brian's I'm having a phone night, I'm having a nightmare. Wait, are you recording your own conversation with I us? I was actually though? listening to you on the app, the WGBH <laughs> app, available from iTunes and wherever you get your app. Slight apps. delay on that, apparently, because you were still talking, I believe. Anyway, so let's bring it back to Melissa Aldana, oh, Rob, shall we? Yes. Uh, Melissa. Uh, great tenor saxophonist from Chile. She is the first woman to win the... Thelonious Monk International Jazz Saxophone Competition. So really talented player and composer. She's going to be at Scullers in the middle of May. And she just has a beautiful sound. Um, 
it like the fact that she's a woman is something that comes up a lot. She actually talks about it. She talks about an association with Frida Kahlo as a woman who succeeded as an artist in a male-dominated field. She sees herself playing a similar role as a saxophonist. What I want you to listen to is just a beautiful sound, and gender doesn't matter. Where you come from doesn't matter. Um, we're going to hear her actually on a duet with a bass player, uh, a cover of Kurt Vile's My Ship. This is Melissa Aldana. Isn't that pretty? That yeah. is, that's pretty. It's like a smoky sound, kind of like Sonny Rollins. So she is uh, actually playing a show at Scholars with Berkeley students. Uh, she, they're doing this tour of four cities, New York and um, uh, Washington, Philly, I believe. And she's playing with current Berkeley students, this very accomplished player. So it's a great opportunity for these kids. And you go to this show at Scholars and you hear this saxophonist who's new and great. And uh, that'll be a good time. May 16th. At Isn't Scholars. that weird, though, Rob? Like, uh, like, like how, how the register of the saxophone... Like veers towards men, the lower it goes. Mm. I mean, like Grace Kelly is a great alto and soprano sax player, True. right? Yep. But she does her thing. But you go down to the tenor and the barry sax, and it's kind of just men, right? I that's, mean, that's that. It, I didn't even think about it until you were talking about right. it. Right. And you, you know, that's a great point, Brian. Um, she is occupying rare territory as a tenor saxophonist who happens to not be a man. So, um, but when you hear it. Yeah, it, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, know, no, no, it has nothing to do with but it. But it is, it is. You're right. She is really, um, she's one of a kind. Melissa yeah, Aldana. I had a band director once who said that all great players look like their instruments. <laughs> Interesting. Know, but, really? So, you, so, you're saying, so you, you look like a trumpet. I'm just. I'm not yeah. saying what I. Uh, I read anyway. an article a few weeks ago that said every dog owner looks like their dog. So yeah. is that, how does that? <laughs> Wouldn't want to look like a. Neither one is all that appealing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Brian McCree uh, is uh, the end of. Concert yeah. round one. Is yeah, you. So, Marjorie, I hate to do this to you. I'm going to pull you right back into the middle of it. Okay. You are? Yeah. It's an opera version of The Handmaid's oh, Tale. Oh, well, That should be upbeat. That's good. <laughs> That's good. No, this is an amazing opera, and it came out way before the TV series did, right? But it is based on Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale. Paul Ruders, a Dutch composer, wrote it, and um, it wrote it in 2000. And then it was uh, it's uh, it was originally done in Dutch, so that's the recording I've got. I don't have the English one, but the Boston Lyric Opera is going to be doing this at the um, I think I say this right the Laviatus Pavilion, Ray Laviatus Pavilion um, at Harvard, and which is kind of a gym, right? And so they're staging this. BLO doesn't have its own permanent home, so they're staging this in this gym, in a way because that evokes what the what in the in the story of Handmaid's Tale is the Red Center. It's oh. sort of this like awful place, yeah. right? And and so um, so this is a newly commissioned edition of this opera by Paul Ruders by BLO. So it's really stepping out with something that is modern, something's cutting edge, but also very beautiful, very effective, and something that. That obviously, I mean, I guess I'm not clearly the first person to say this, has a lot to say about our time, right? So the music I brought along is going to demonstrate kind of the harsher side of this. Here's a little bit of the first scene of The Handmaid's Tale by Reuters. Um, so let's go ahead and start the music. I'll explain as we go.
Okay, so this is where the character Lydia is indoctrinating all the handmaids by going through these commandments. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not speak ill of Gilead or whatever that, that king, uh, you know, the, the land is. So you see this dialogue going back and forth. It's got this harshness about it. Yeah. And then Lydia says, who's going to testify? And the main character of Handmaid's Tale, of Fred, or of Fred, speaks up and says, I will testify. It's coming up right here. She says, who's going to testify? And Ofred says, I'm going to testify. I had an abortion at 14. You understand that, right? Do you understand what he's saying? Yes, this is a, absolutely. I learned Dutch just so I could understand this. <laughs> <laughs> this is like music to read the Mueller report by. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it's you know, sort of the feel for this. When you go see this, you get the yes. translation, right? You well, no, the... no, no. Let me, let me be clear. I, I didn't make that clear enough before. It will be done in English. Okay, it will be done in English. Okay. It will be done in English. You do see the translation. Yeah, most operas, they do super titles, which means that the English is sort of scrolling Mm -hmm. on a big thing that you can read as it goes. But in this case, uh, Reuters created an English version of this opera Mm. not long after. It's just that it's only been recorded in Dutch. And uh, so when BLO does this, it'll be in English. And like I said, it'll be this new edition, I think probably for a smaller orchestra. It takes a huge orchestra in the original. And I think that BLO commissioned a slightly smaller orchestra to be a little more economical. But Reuters is an amazing orchestrator, so so I think it's going to be a pretty spectacular uh, experience in this sort of gym that's going to evoke the whole feel of this dystopian land anyway. So that's May 5th, 8th, 10th, and 12th, Boston Lyric Opera. And remember, you, it's, not, it's not over until the dead lady sings. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay, Brian O'Donovan, the phone is all set now. This uh, is somebody that I've, I've followed for, for many, many years. He is an incredible musician. He was on the scene in the 60s as part of the group Fairport Convention. Oh, of course. That's right. He is uh, Richard Thompson, yeah, and yeah. he is still around. This is an, a guy that has been touring regularly, sometimes twice mm. a year around the Boston area. He's up at the Cabot Theatre, which is one of my favourite new, newish theatres up in uh, Beverly on May 17th. But Richard Thompson loves to perform. He just loves to give uh, uh, these artistic performances. And he is known for his songwriting, some of the more impactful songs, some of the more poetic uh, ballads that have ever been written. And he gave, a few years ago at Sanders Theatre, probably the best solo performance I have ever seen, bar none. Why? Why do you say that? Because he is able to communicate so well. He's a storyteller. He sits there. He's an incredible guitarist in all sorts of styles. You know this, Rob. And an amazing um, a singer, but he has mm-hmm. now he's got he's got age along w- w- with him, so he's got credibility on stage. And the fact that he loves to perform so so much is that he exudes this delight, this joy, this exuberance, if you will, of sitting there telling these stories. He often does, Jim. You'd get a kick out of this. He often does shows where he does a hundred percent 
spontaneous, extemporaneous audience requests. Mm, the audience wow. actually says, can you play this? And he says, oh, okay, I haven't done it for a while, but I'll do it. And he'll do a, a full hour and a half of that. Nice. So he's coming up at the Cabot Theatre. Take a listen to this piece. is particularly one of my, uh, one of the songs I really admire most of Richard Thompson. It's a song called Galway to Graceland. And it tells the story of a woman who's so dedicated to Elvis. She has a mental breakdown in Galway, she leaves her family and goes to Graceland. And she whispered amen She was pretty and pink like a young girl again Twenty years married And she never thought twice She sneaked out the door and walked into Oh, he's got such an unusual voice. Well, you're just I've not always li- loved it. You're just not listening to a kind of a song, kind of it's a pretty song. You're actually listening to the words of the song, and he tells these stories in a way that is just so satisfying, so fulfilling. If I keep saying to people, if you haven't seen Richard Thompson, you've got to put it on your bucket list as a musical experience. Absolutely. It's an absolutely unique experience. Yeah, I lo- and the thing that, this is a great song and a great performance vocally, but what um, what you also, and you mentioned this, his guitar playing. It's, it's outstanding. It's through the roof fantastic and he's not sort of a trained musician he played in Fairport Convention when he was a teen he's mm-hmm. just an amazing guitar player singer songwriter the whole thing absolutely certainly worth traveling to Beverly or going to that beautiful theatre they do a great job I always give a shout out to places that are performing arts centres for a community this is an old theatre that was about to be torn down and made into condos just what Beverly <laughs> needed more condos <laughs> but they basically changed it and somebody bought it and gave it back to the community and uh, it is now a performing arts centre for that region and hats off to the great work they're doing. At By the, the way, Cabot if you don't live in it, it's a great night, too, if you've been up to the Beyond the fact that the Cabot is a beautiful place, great, great restaurants, yeah. absolutely. literally steps away. It's a great, it's a great night. 100%. Nice. Okay, nice. Rob. Well, while we're up north, let's go up to Rockport to the Shaylin Lou Performance Centre, which keeps coming up on this program <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, and for good reason. So next month on June 7th, the great bassist from Philadelphia, Jim, Ooh, uh, Christian McBride and and his Tip City trio, which is guitar and uh, piano, will be playing up there in Rockport. So, like I said, he's from Philly. His dad was actually a musician, also a bassist who played with great Philly soul bands like the Delphonics and Billy Paul. So he's been steeped in this music for a long time. He went to Juilliard. He's played with everyone in the jazz world, outside of the jazz world. He played with Queen Latifah. He's played with Sonny Rollins. So this is an extraordinary musician. He's been on hundreds and hundreds of albums. The thing is about the bass is that it's not always front and center in any setting. There's so many cases where you'll hear a rock band or a folk band or a jazz group, and you, and you say to yourself, I can't even hear the bass. Well, this is one of these cases where the bass... Bassist is Christian McBride. He's the leader. He's the composer. And he's got a very big sound on the bass. So what we're going to do, we're going to jump in about two minutes into a tune of uh, of his called I Guess I'll Have to Forget with pianist Christian Sands. And you'll hear uh, Christian Sands sort of set the melody. We can start this now. And then um, you'll start to hear the bass as Christian uh, McBride takes over for a solo. So just kind of stating the end of the melody here. And you hear him in the background on bass at first. 
must be great in that hall up there. Oh, yeah. Well, with the water in the background. And well, just... And it's just so intimate. Oh, yeah. He's right there on top of him, you know. That's right. So he's got this sense of melody, this bass player. So listen to kind of what he's saying with the bass. After, after Rob's first two choices, why do I feel like taking up smoking again? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Brian. I know this is difficult for you. So, uh, you know, and this is sort of a bossa nova groove, almost this tune. So he just has this huge vocabulary of music and melody um, and just a great soloist and band leader. Also, um, really into uh, educating the next generation. He and his wife has this uh, an organization called Jazz House Kids in New Jersey. So, helping foster the next generation of musicians. So, Christian McBride, Tip City, Rockport, Shaylin Lou, June seventh. Very cool. Don't miss that one. Which, uh, yeah, we were discussing this the other day uh, when we try not to mention Woody Allen anymore. Wasn't he playing <laughs> the bass in the marching band? In that movie, where cello. he oh, was the cello, yeah. where he do a couple of, <laughs> play a couple of notes, pick up his chair, and have to <laughs> catch up with the marching band. Oh, that's band. great! Yeah, that was like it was a cello. So, <laughs> well, well, you brought up Woody this time, Jim. I I know. Know. Last time, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. I'll do it again this week. I know. <laughs> I wish you didn't have all these problems because I really did love his I movies. Know. <laughs> they were pretty good. <laughs> okay, Brian McCree, take it away. Hey, I did not know that David Gergen was going to come yes. on your show today and talk all about the Hanel and Hyden. Are you doing yeah. a handle on Hyden? Yeah, I am. Oh, great. I oh, am, great. actually. Great. Jim, that's right. That's great. what I'm doing here. Because, because look, I, I mean, I don't know how it is for the jazz and the, and the indie and the rock and the folk music and everything, but this first weekend of May, like every season, this is like a huge weekend. And I mean, the big hitters are coming out with their final concerts of the season. And that's the case with the Hanel and Hyden Society and BLO and what we're going to get to next. We'll get to it. But H, anyway, H&H is doing this terrific program that it kind of culminates in Mozart's Requiem. But what I love is that Harry Christopher's constructed the program before the Requiem, before you get there, by taking these little moments from Mozart's life and and doing music around that. So they start with a... uh a piece that Mozart wrote that's called Masonic Funeral Music, which Mozart wrote when he was inducted into the Masons, and that became a big deal for him. And then they do this piece by Allegri called Miserere. And this is something that Mozart heard when he was 14 years old at the Vatican. And then they go from that to a Bach piece, a motet that, that Mozart heard when he was in Leipzig. He visited Leipzig when he was in his 20s. And he listens to this motet, and he, uh, the quote is, he, he apparently turns around to somebody and says, now this is music you could learn from. So you get this Allegri and this Bach, and then you end up at the Mozart Requiem, the very last thing that Mozart wrote made famous by Amadeus in a fictionalized account of the way that piece was written. It wasn't really written that way. Now, but, Brian, what is a motet exactly? A motet is a choral piece that, that has multiple movements and is, uh, you know, doesn't really feature any soloists or any okay. particular narrative. I can't it's believe a, you didn't know what a motet I know. Was. I thought it was some combination of Mozart and some group, you know. I could have explained But Jim was right there to help you out. I was. You just got in a little bit faster. Anyway, I want to play a little bit of this of this Allegri piece, which is which is a piece piece that he heard, that Mozart heard at 14 when he was in the Vatican. It was a very secretive piece. Like, the, the choristers were not allowed to let anybody have the music for this. Let's start this, and I'll sort of talk about it as we go. This is the Miserere. I never used to like this kind of music. I love mm. this music. Now. Like going to why. church. So, in a way, this is just... Don't go a, to church that often. <laughs> thank you. 
<laughs> Sorry, bro. Like going to church, not actually going to church. <laughs> so this is just a motet. I mean, I'm sorry. This is a this is a Gregorian chant. I said just mm. a motet. Um, this is a, a harmonized chant. It's very simple in a way. It's not a complicated piece of music. But Mozart, because this piece is so secretive, and they wouldn't give out the music to it. As a 14-year-old, he walks away and he remembers it and transcribes the whole thing. He just writes the whole thing down. And so there's this legend about it. And from his ear, he writes Yeah, the yeah, whole he just remembered the whole thing. That's pretty nuts. Right. So it's <laughs> ridiculous. So this piece has taken on this sort of mythic proportion, right? And uh, it, 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 what's what's actually sung now as the version of this piece is actually a compilation of various people's recollections. It's not really exactly what Allegri wrote. But it's a beautiful, beautiful choral thing. Just take a listen to this. There's a very famous part coming up next. That's a high note. It's a very high note. Again, not a complicated piece, but a really, really effective piece. And the thing about Harry Christopher's and H&H, I mean, Harry's done a lot of great things, but among them is that this choir now is just a stellar, stellar vocal unit. They are so good together. And so for them to be doing this Allegri piece along with the, the Bach motet that I mentioned, and then they go into the Mozart Requiem, this is a fantastic evening. Uh, and actually, it's two different concerts on, on Friday night and Sunday afternoon this coming week, H&H with Harry Christopher's doing the Mozart Requiem and what you just heard, the Allegri Miserere. At Symphony Hall. At Symphony Hall. Great. It's at Symphony Hall. Some nice voices in that chorus. I'd yeah, say so, yeah. Margaret. Yeah. I think that's true. Okay, we have to take a quick break. We're going to be back. We're previewing, previewing that is, upcoming concerts in the region with WCRB's Brian McCreef, Berkeley College of Music's Rob Hoshield, and WG, WGBH's Brian O'Donovan. The conversation continues at 89.7, and the music continues. Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Brothers. She is uh, Marjorie. And we're in the second half or last third or whatever it is of our um, concert roundtable preview of upcoming performances in the area, which we really love doing. Uh, the way is being led by CRB's uh, Brian McCreese, Berkeley College of Music's Rob Hoshield, and WGBH's Brian O'Donovan. Take it away, Brian. Great to be with you guys this afternoon. I often look for somebody with a local local rev- re- uh, reference, uh, and I speak of resident this afternoon, Somerville resident, of course, of Anche Duvacat, uh, who has been living in this area for many, many years. Uh, she was born in Heidelberg in Germany, but moved here when she was about 13 years old, moved to the U.S., that is, and subsequently, more recently, up to Boston. She is a singer, songwriter. She's collaborated with folk musicians, with bluegrass, with Irish traditional musicians. She famously sang with the Irish supergroup Solace for many, many years. A really, really powerful voice, but it's finding her own voice in recent years that has impressed me about Anche. And she's going to be part of the ongoing series of concerts at the wonderful and intimate Club Passim in Harvard Square, which continues to thrive and is in its 60th year, actually celebrating its 60th year 
of existence. But Anche Duvicat, as you will listen, as you will hear in this piece, is able to take her folk sensibilities again, like Richard Thompson, her storytelling capabilities, and blend them into a more kind of an indie rock sound that's really, really rich really, really evocative of the story theme and really brings you along for the ride of her narrative. Anche Duvacat. You've been following your compass Putting in your two cents Still feel like you're walking in a shoebox Mapping out a dead end In the Chartered country out on ecstasy's borders, you have seen the reflection. Interesting arrangement, too. There's laughter in your cities. It's very, very interesting arrangement. Really well produced, Rob. You're absolutely right. It has that great backbeat. It's, um, you know, just kind of light enough to really have the lyrics and the lyricism out front, but it has a kind of a pop, a really wonderful pop edge to it. She's got such an effortless voice. That's exactly the right word. I was trying to think of an adjective, but it's perfect. This is a great way to spend an evening just exploring songs and music in this kind of smooth way. It's kind of almost like saxophone right there. Mm -hmm. I mean, her voice is has that quality. Spell her last name, will you please? There, it's a uh, Duvacot. D U V E K O T. She was born in Germany. She was born in Heidelberg. Yeah, Heidelberg, yeah. a lot of music in Heidelberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. student prince, right? Yeah. Okay, Rob <laughs> Wow. You've command of so many languages, yeah. Brian. Yeah, that's, that's, you just reached the extent He's of my German, German final segment in Dutch. Oh, that's, I'm looking really, forward to that. We've never had that before. Yeah. I'm really excited. <laughs> All right. So let's go to the Sanders Theater for this next one, a uh, week from Friday, May 10th. Uh, it is uh, one of the last in the a year-long celebrity series of Boston series or in various places. So we've got uh, Latin jazz and Cuban jazz. Three musicians from Cuba um, leading groups, Alfredo Rodriguez and Pedrito Martinez duo. That's one half of this double bill. And the other is Arturo O'Farrell Quintet. So all of these folks were born in Cuba. Uh, I think they all live in New York now, and they make that fusion of of Latin music and jazz that, you know, came to this country in a big way around the 40s and 50s. Dizzy Gillespie had a lot to do with sort of having it all come together in this country. And, you know, Cuba's been a lot in the news this week with this Venezuela stuff that's going on. One of the beautiful things about what's happening in Cuba is that uh, because we've had more of an open borders thing lately is that there's just been more of an exchange of, of the music and we hear a lot of it in this country. So this is a really great show. I don't know how people are going to stay in those Sanders Theater seats for something like this. <laughs> um, so Arturo Farrell is a piano player. His father was a big band leader, born in Cuba, lives in, in New York now, and, and typically runs an orchestra. What we're going to hear at the Sanders Theater on May 10th, though, is his quintet. So this piece we're about to hear is called Ceviche from one of his albums. It's a smaller group. It's a quintet. Uh, or an eight-piece group, and it's a really nice tune that almost harkens back to the Blue Note days. So that's him setting setting the tone on piano, and then these horns come in.
so this that that piece actually reminds me a lot of blue note american music of the 50s and 60s yeah, yeah. so this show you'll get some of that and you'll get some of this like hard driving latin jazz it's really going to be a great show so I'll say the names again, hard for me. Alfredo Rodriguez <laughs> and Pedrito Martinez duo. What we just heard was Arturo O'Farrell, Sanders Theater, May 10th. Arturo O'Farrell. It says here that his father was a Dublin-born hijacker who jumped on a plane in 1969 and said, take me to Cuba. <laughs> Wait, is that true? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Brian O'Donovan, we've got to watch it for you. Did you just pull that off of your so phone? That was very clever. <laughs> he turned his phone back. Okay. Be, be, be actually, yeah. Let me ask you a quick question before we go to uh, uh, you, Brian. Uh, I assume if you go to the websites of the Cabot or Passim or, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the scholars, all these performances are listed on there. Oh, yeah. So you, okay. And yep. not alone yep. are they yep. listed, there. Marjorie. It's a very good point because they're listed often with illustrative, you know, YouTube videos yep. or little pieces that you can hear. Great. So no, no longer is it like, I don't know what this person is all about. You can hear and understand a lot about them before going to see it. And, and really what we say here all the time in closing these things is, is to go and take a chance. See something that you've never uh, felt comfortable in, perhaps, or been attracted to before, because seeing it or experiencing it live, there's nothing like it. Live music. It's true. Brian McCreeth, you got two minutes. Okay, well, it's pretty uh, straight ahead here. The BSO is wrapping up their season. As I said, it's kind of the big heavy hitters weekend here. I mean, I love the small groups around Boston, but when the BSO is wrapping up its season with Stravinsky's Petrushka, I can't resist it. Petrushka is just absolutely one of my favorite pieces in the world. It's a piece by Stravinsky that he wrote wrote uh, right after the Firebird, right before the Rite of Spring, all that's historical stuff that maybe you don't care about, but it sounds unbelievable. Let's just hear a little bit of Petrushka. Originally a ballet, it is the story of these little puppets in a Russian fair sounds who like have that, a actually. sort of love triangle problem going on. Oh, and really? This, yeah, there's this little puppet oh, no. named Petrushka, a kind of pathetic little character, who's kind of bullied by this other fellow, but they're both in love with the ballerina, and it's this unbelievable score that tells an amazing story, and I just, I just can't resist the music. And if you have a chance to hear a major orchestra like the BSO do this in a place like Symphony Hall, it's just so colorful. It's just like a burst of color coming out of the stage. And, uh, and, and the drama that goes into it is, is great as well, but it's just, it's just addictive music. It is so much fun. And uh, along with uh, Petrushka, uh, Andres Nelson is going to conduct a piece called Till Eulenspiegel's Merry Pranks by Richard Ooh. Strauss, hmm. another kind of funny story about a clownish kind of guy that gets himself in a lot of trouble. It doesn't end well for him. And then there's going to be a world premiere by a guy named Sebastian Courier. I've actually talked about Sebastian Courier in previous segments of, of, of doing these things with you guys before for a major American composer with an amazing sense of instrumental color. He's written a piece that was commissioned by the BSO with the Leipzig Gewandhaus mm. Orchestra, part of the product of that whole commissioning project. And, uh, and it's written for this violinist named Baiba Skrida, high school friend of Andres's, who's an incredible violinist. So that's all going on this weekend at Symphony Hall. But of course... Oh, man, Petrushka. It's amazing. And by the way, Andres is going to be with us tomorrow morning. Yes, he is. That's good. 
Yes, it is. He can, speak, he can speak for himself, then. Yes, he can. Okay, WCRB's Brian McCarthy, executive producer of WCRB's Boston Symphony Orchestra Broadcast, the executive producer of WCRB in concert, and host of an interview podcast from CRB called The Answered Question. Rob Hoshield, associate professor of liberal arts at Berklee College of Music, and Brian O'Donovan is the host of A Celtic Sojourn. Thank you all very much for being here. This was Thanks, so guys. much fun and such a needed break. And I hope you guys enjoyed it, too, out there in listening world. And thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow, Andrew Cabral, Meet the Press, Chuck Todd, and Paul Revel, our education man, will tell us about the new superintendent of the Boston Public Schools. We want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs and Amanda McGowan, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, our engineer, John, The Claw, Parker, what is on television tonight, Jim? Well, we're going to continue the discussion, obviously, with Barr's testimony in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee over. So our buddy Michael Zeldin, who used to work with Bob Mueller, is going to join us. And two former U.S. attorneys, Carmen Ortiz, who worked for Barack Obama, Michael Sullivan, worked for George W. Bush. We'll do that. Arun Rath has a piece on the new drop-off rules that we've been talking about on the show at Massport, particularly as relates to rideshare. And you know who Sarah Friedberg is, Marjorie? She is the woman from the Burbs, from Natick, who wrote that Facebook post about leaning out, talking about all the stresses on mothers, and it's a 1,054-word piece, and it was in the Globe the other day. She is fabulous. The story is great. She's going to join me as well. Alan, I'm going to, you and I both are going to do a little piece at the end of the show. Our day started with Mayor Pete and ended with the Clintons. We're going to talk about the contrast. That's right. And I should have a piece up about the Clintons any minute now on, Boston, on the Boston Globe website. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Browning. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great afternoon.